Chicago, this is your kind of excitement. The Chicago Sting, indoors in the major indoor soccer league. 24 home games at Chicago Stadium. Be there for the nonstop action of America's fastest growing sport. Call 558-KICK to reserve your tickets. Indoor soccer, the Chicago Sting, your kind of excitement. The hottest team in Chicago battles Kansas City Sunday afternoon on Ovaltine MISL Mug Day. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings, gang. How are you? My name's Tim Hanlon, and um, yeah, this is uh, Good Seats Still Available. It's the curious little podcast that's devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. If you're here for the first time, uh, pull up a chair and uh, give a listen. I think you'll enjoy uh, some of our little meanderings through the world of forgotten sports teams and leagues. Uh, and if you're uh, a repeat customer, uh, we thank you so much, too. You can pull up a chair, maybe a more plush one, because you've been here before. You know how things work around here. Uh, these are conversations. These are uh, interesting interviews and uh, and discussions with people, uh, both uh, uh, directly and indirectly involved with uh, teams and leagues and sports and things that, uh, for whatever reason, don't exist anymore, uh, but uh, have dotted the landscape of U.S. professional sports over the years, over the decades, some cases over the centuries. Uh, and it's a curious little exploration that we do. I, we, you know, as we've talked about many times before, I'm not sure quite why I do this, uh, but it's endlessly fascinating. Uh, and at least to me it is. Uh, and, uh, each week it seems that there are uh, dozens and dozens more of you out there who, uh, uh, share sort of this curiosity, uh, as well. Um, and, uh, I think this episode, uh, almost encapsulates kind of, uh, sort of the zeitgeist behind all of our little, uh, our little adventurous uh, uh, conversations. And um, our guest uh, is a guy by the name of Doug Verb. And uh, he is probably the sort of quintessential example of the uh, type of person uh, professionally that is uh, so crucial uh, in uh, any professional sports endeavor, uh, perhaps more so now, uh, even more so than it was years and years ago uh, when Doug was sort of at the apex of his uh his promotional career uh, in 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 the sports world, where you know the the art of uh, breaking through uh, public relations and PR were the same thing, frankly. Uh, promotions. Uh, how do you stand out uh, in a sea of entertainment choices? And again, today it's probably even more difficult than it was maybe back in the you know in, in decades prior. But it's still. Uh, it's still a hard thing, right? When you especially are a new team uh, in a city, uh, perhaps with other sports franchises that, um, you know, are, are need to be competed against and or you stand out against or try to compare or contrast against uh, for the entertainment sports marketing dollar. Uh, maybe you're part of a new league, right? Which is sort of a, a double whammy, right? Because you're a new team and a new league and you got to sort of sell both somewhat simultaneously. And, you know, if you want the sort of uh, ultimate uh, uh, triple word score of uh, of, of challenge, uh, perhaps, hell, you're even a new sport. And uh, and Doug, uh, you know, is an amazing uh, uh, an interesting character, uh, as we'll talk about, because uh, in many respects, uh, he was part of of sort of that tripartite uh, uh, challenge, if you will, a Rubik's Cube uh, in in a couple of different environments. Uh, around that. That is a new team, a new league, 
and uh, and sometimes even a new sport. Um, and we're going to talk about his travails, uh, in particular with uh, the North American Soccer League and the Philadelphia Adams, which was, in many respects, the outdoor soccer in the uh, in the seventies was still a relatively new sport. Uh, we can argue about its history in this country, but in terms of professional, you know, it was only a few years old in, in the modern sense. Uh, his role, uh, very uh, seminal in the uh, the activities, the promotional activities of the major indoor soccer league. There's your new sport again, right? Indoor soccer, people understood soccer, but the indoor variety, it's a whole new thing. Uh, we get into uh, his, uh, his promotional efforts with the uh, uh, Chicago Sting. We get to some very interesting conversations there. And interestingly, too, uh, his involvement in the earliest days of the Arena Football League. There it is again, where a team or teams, a league, brand new, and, uh, and a sport, right, where you had to sell all those things. And uh, for our friends uh, uh, out there who are fascinated by this stuff, as am I, uh, you uh, probably know the website uh, that we love uh, from our friend uh, Andy Crossley. It's called Fun While It Lasted. And funwhileitlasted.net is the is the place. And, and as I've said many times before, and of course on our episode number two with uh, with Andy himself, uh, is is the uh, unique and uh, uh, unmatched uh, treasure trove of of stories uh, and and stuff and memorabilia around teams and leagues that don't exist anymore. And in some respects, actually, uh, you know, a, a bit of uh, an impetus for us getting this podcast up and running. Um, but on that site at funwhileitlasted.net, you will find, if you search for it, a, uh, a, a tremendous interview uh, in written form with Doug. And, and it sort of gave me the, uh, uh, the concept to, uh, to go deeper uh, and uh, in audio form via the podcast. So we are uh, tickled pink uh, to have Doug Verb here with us as our guest this week. And uh, we get into all of that stuff and more uh, in just a couple of seconds. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, it's coming at you uh, in momentarily. Uh, we want to promote uh, in the theme of promotion, shall we? Uh, our uh, sponsors, and again, by uh, by uh, uh, enjoying some of what our sponsors uh, offer, uh, you will give some love uh, monetarily uh, to us. And that's, of course, always good because we like to keep uh, pumping out these great shows for you to listen to. And uh, unfortunately, it's not a charity. So uh, here we go. So Audible, right? Audiobooks, you love them, you know them, you can't live without them. At least I can't. And uh, I encourage you to uh, give them a try for yourself as well uh, and give an audiobook a listen. And there's no better way to do that by going to Audible than by going to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And our friends at Audible uh, will give you for doing so a uh, free month of the Audible uh, service as well as one free audiobook download uh, for you to listen to. And enjoy 180,000 plus titles and growing. You will uh, find no excuse to find uh, you, you will have no problem finding uh, a book that will uh, satisfy your interests. Uh, come on, 180,000 titles. You can't find one. Please give me a break. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash good seats for your free one month uh, subscription to the service and a free audiobook download. I need to stress this. I will do it again. You can cancel at any time. It's no risk. Give it a try. AudibleTrial.com slash good seats. As they say, you'll be glad you did. And uh, not uh, not least, of course, our other friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Again, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. It's the place to find that perfect gift for the uh, sports uh, enthusiast in your life, especially uh, if there's a team or a league that uh, they uh, remember vividly or fondly or perhaps cursorily. 
and uh, perhaps would like to uh, cement that memory with uh, a piece of memorabilia for them to own and to love and to enjoy. Uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And when you, you're there, he stumbles his way to saying, uh, and you find something either for your, your friend, your spouse, whomever, or yourself for that matter, for God's sakes, use the promo code GOODSEATS, will you? Good seats. That's the promo code at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And for that, you will get 15% off your purchases uh, at the site. His, excuse me. Again, it's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Visit there early. Visit there often. And um, we thank them for their sponsorship as well. All right. So in the realm of sponsorship uh, and or promotion and or all that stuff that sort of sits in that big circus tent known as marketing. Uh, we uh, segue into our conversation, a, a fun one. Uh, when are they not? But this one is especially fun with our friend, our new friend, Doug Verb, uh, here on the uh, the big show. Uh, give a listen. Maybe uh, the best thing uh, to do for our audience is to kind of uh, give you give us a little bit of uh, your background uh, prior to us getting into the weeds of some of the uh, hijinks and hilarity of your sports promotion uh, career, in particular with professional sports. Um, what was the sort of prelude to all of that before we get into it? What was your, you know, your upbringing and your schooling and your uh, your interests as, as a kid and as a young adult? How did you even, uh, you know, give us some sense of who you were uh, as you were growing up and, and maybe uh, a bit of a sense of maybe how you maybe stumbled into this uh, crazy world of now mostly prof- uh, forgotten professional sports stuff? Neighbors across the street, uh, uh, a young boy who was a year and a half older than me, and um, his father, who was uh, a referee and umpire, you know, for high school and college sports, uh, just got me interested in sports. And they lived across the street, and then we moved. Um, little further up into the suburbs of Philadelphia and a year later they moved right next door to us. So I always had this great interest with sports. Um, my father didn't and he worked all the time anyway. So he would uh, take me to one game a year. He had Roberto Clemente was his uh, baseball guy so we went to see the Pirates. Lenny Wilkins was his basketball guy, so we went to see the old St. Louis Hawks. Uh, I don't think we ever went to a football game, so and there was no ice hockey in Philly at the time. So that was it, and I, I, I can't tell you why. I've never really even thought about that, but always outside playing, whatever was in season. Uh, went, I was a tall string bean, so I went a little more towards basketball, shoveled the driveway, of a neighbor to play basketball in the winter. And it was always sports. Uh, I can clearly remember my friend Jeff uh, showing me that the third section of the evening bulletin, a long, dead evening bulletin, the third section every day was sports. And that's where you found out the scores and the box scores. And you that's how you learned about things. It was that or radio and uh, to listen to some Phillies games and a little bit of television, you know, game of the week. And I just had a fascination with it. It's uh, nothing, uh, nothing other than that. So 
I went uh, went to college. Uh, I was a basketball player. I quickly realized I uh, was going to do nothing but sit on the bench and had an opportunity at Temple University to uh, under the great Hall of Fame coach Harry Litwack uh, to help manage the team. And the Hall of Fame Sports Information Director, Al Schreier, uh, got a hold of me. I was a journalism major and, and said, well, why don't you, you can do some work. Uh, he, Mr. Schreier had and still has, uh, he's still alive, uh, a fear of flying. So he sent me on the trips and I practiced with the team whenever they needed me to. And I kept the scholarship and did all of the, uh, you know, work study programs, 20, uh, $20 a month. No, no, I guess it was, I don't know what it was, $20 a week, maybe. Uh, I forget. But the first trip I went out to the Far West Classic. It was an eight-team college Christmas tournament. They only had a few then. And we went out there to Portland, Oregon in the rain. rained every day. And I would call back to the radio stations. I would write stories for the then three daily newspapers in Philadelphia, just short things. Sometimes I would just call it in to a desk man. And uh, when I got back, he handed me a whole host of checks. I said, what's this? He said, well, they pay you when you do, when you do this work. So uh, I said, wow, this is really great. So there I was with all the money in the world. You know, I was making money from the media outlets. I didn't know they were media outlets at the time. I, I was making money from school. I was on scholarship. I could work in the summer. I used to keep statistics for the famed Harvey Pollack, the legendary statistician of, of the 76ers, the Warriors, the man who made the sign 100 uh, when Will Chamberlain scored 100 in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Well, I became his second son and would do all the stats at uh, the big five games in the Palestra at the, um, oh, everything, even the uh, World Football League, the Philadelphia Bell, I would do stats for that at all the different schools. And the, the, one of the best ones, little side story, five of us uh, every other Sunday would get in a car in South Philadelphia and drive down to Baltimore to be the stat crew for the Baltimore Colts at Old Memorial Stadium. Now, I never understood why they couldn't find five people to do stats in Baltimore, but we did it, and we were happy for it, and that lasted about three years. We'd have those great crab cakes at halftime with the windows open of the press box in the old days before computers and writing notes as to you know how many yards Alan Amici had. and uh, It was way after Johnny Unitas, probably after Alan Amici, too. So... I had a great background with that. I started working um, for some of the newspapers there, uh, just doing, you know, weekends in the fall, high schools. And I um, never really, uh, I wanted to be a sports information director. And back in the day, I, I went to college from 60, uh, well, 68 to 72. And um, in the day, they didn't have internships. They didn't have sports business, sports management, sports anything. There was no curriculum for that. Uh, so I had basically what amounted to an internship working for Mr. Schreier. And he was the dean then, and he was for many, many years. up. I think he retired maybe five years ago. 
so that was an incredible experience, and I just got to do everything. And I wanted to be an SID, but they only had one SID at the major schools. I bet Notre Dame probably had two because of their football program, but that was it. So there weren't many jobs. And I vividly remember uh, at the beginning of my junior year, um, Mr. Schreier got funding for uh, for an assistant. And I walked in there. I thought for sure, okay, it's going to be me. And uh, he said, no, I've hired uh, Dave Leonard from Colgate. And I was just heartbroken. And I said, well, why? So he said, well, I, I couldn't hire you. Your mother would kill me. I said, why? He said, because you wouldn't finish school. Oh, sure I would. I'll, you know, I'll go to school at night. I'll do different, you know, during the day I can do things. And all. He said, no, you wouldn't do that. So I was pretty heartbroken. And he was probably absolutely, not probably, he was definitely absolutely right. So... Um, I graduated. There were no SID jobs. I took a job at the Norristown Times Herald. Um, crossed the old sports editor there, Red McCarthy. Uh, looked at my name, Verb. He said, Verb, huh? You're going to write a column, uh, Verb's Action. It'll be a notes column. I said, come on, everybody's made fun of my name and action, Verb, and this. And Come on. So I hemmed and hawed. It didn't matter to him. He just kept smoking a little stub of a cigar and uh, with, a, with a glass of scotch on the table, on his desk. And, you know, it turned out to be a pretty good column, and he taught me the benefit of a weekly paycheck. So I did that and instantly fell in love with the newspaper game and, you know, ink in my veins, and it was great. Moved on to the Philadelphia Daily News, which was, um, uh, you know, probably – maybe the best sports section in America, certainly one of the top five incredible writers there, Tom Cushman, uh, Bill Conlon on baseball, Stan Hockman, just great, right? Ray Dinger, who's a Hall of Famer in the Football Hall of Fame. Uh, so that was a great place to be uh, for, for a while. And uh, then I moved to the Washington Post, and I was, they owned the Trenton Times, so I was there and covered everything in, in uh, Philadelphia, New York. And it was great. I could write anything I wanted because nobody ever read it. You know, the athletes never read it, so uh, nobody was bothered by it. But I covered a lot of soccer. It was 1976, 77, and the Cosmos were the big thing. It was an absolute circus uh, with you know, with all the big stars, Warner Brothers owned them, Pele, Canalia, Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto. So I got to know a little bit about soccer. Trenton was a, a huge soccer area. Uh, Trenton and St. Louis at the time were the two major places, maybe some places in Rhode Island with the Portuguese. And um, I was covering a lot of it. I got a call uh, one day from a guy named Ed Tepper. And he said, I'd like to, uh, Ed owned the Philadelphia Wings of the, I guess it was called the National Lacrosse Team at the time. Yes, that was National the, uh, the 1974-75 version of the National Lacrosse League. And by the way, as we're recording this, this, this week's episode is with our uh, friend Russ Klein, uh, the co-founder oh. co of the successor of that, which was the then Eagle Box Lacrosse League and Major Indoor Lacrosse League and now the newly renamed National Lacrosse League. But, yes, that the original Philadelphia Wings was 74-75, yeah. Right. And Ed 
had owned them, and they were very successful coming off of the uh, Broad Street Bullies, the you know flyers, you know of, of hockey. So incredibly successful. So I took Ed's call, and he he was on the phone with another man, Earl Foreman, who name I knew from um, the part owner of the Eagles, brother-in-law of Ed Snyder, and uh, owner of the. Virginia Squires of the ABA and famous for bringing Julius Irving into pro basketball. Sure. So I took this call and they started talking to me about wanting to Americanize soccer. And they said, we'd like you to come in and we'd like to talk to you about how the media will react to it. I said, guys, I don't have to come anywhere. Um, I'll tell you right now, they'll totally ignore you. And of course, they said, why? And I said, because sports editor, you know, nobody really likes soccer. They're forced to cover the cosmos because of the celebrity aspect of it. And they were getting 77,000 people a game. But anywhere else, eh, nobody will cover it. They won't. They're, they're like, they'll push back against it so far. So uh, that's, you know, that's all I can tell you. Well, come on in. Talk to us a little bit. So I went in. I talked to them. And uh, I said, guys, I got to go. I'm, I'm covering the Nets tonight. And I had to go back up to, to Trenton. And I took a nap. And I'll never forget it because it was Friday the 13th, October the 13th. It was my birthday. So I go in. I catch a quick nap. The phone rings. And it's, uh, it's Ed again saying, all excited. He's got our sixth franchise, a sixth city. And um, we really want you to join us. I said, join you at what? I got to cover the Nets tonight. <laughs> so forward-looking thinker that I was, I talked it over with my uh, then wife, and this is going to fold, uh, you know, within a year. Uh, probably three quarters of the people you speak to have, you know, were, were in folding leagues that were happening in that era. So this was this was going to go down the drain like all the other alphabets. And I figured, oh, I was a pretty good reporter, a little better editor. I'll get another job. Although, as we know, that's when newspapers really started folding. There were four in Philadelphia uh, a year or two before, and now suddenly there were two. So I went. It was October 15th. I went into the sports editor and said, I'm, you know, I'm – I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to leave. And he told me to leave then, forget two weeks. So I started Monday and started on this incredible odyssey of starting a brand new sport, a brand new professional league um, in 1978. So it was October 15th. There were four of us, Earl and Ed and, uh, and a soccer guy named Dr. Joe Macknick. He was the U.S. national team goalkeeper coach. He was a former University of New Haven soccer coach, very successful. Brilliant guy, great guy. I think you've had him on. Now Hall of Famer, National Soccer Hall of Famer. Absolutely, that's right, that's right. And I just just heard from him a little while ago. And uh, so thank goodness there was a soccer guy in the room. So we just made things up. We had one thing that we said, it's got to fit in a two-hour window for television. So we built everything around it. And, of course, it was indoors, and it was in a hockey rink. And, yes, we 
put down AstroTurf, although sometimes I thought, wow, it would be pretty cool cool, huh? to uh, just do it on the ice. That would have added some a little dimension. Um, but So we had that, and things would happen like we were just making up the rules, and, and I never kicked a ball in my life. And um, not really, it wasn't a rule that I would make up, but I would make up like how the game should be played. And then I wrote it. You know, and I put it down into a form that is still used today, uh, you know, which that's amazing to me. 40 years ago, this was 40 years ago. And we would get a call, a, a guy who was an intern at the time, called from Pittsburgh, and, and uh, now he, you know, he's a big guy with an agency and everything, Paul Garofalo, and he said, um, uh, I can't find the, the paperwork. We didn't have, there were no emails then. It was teletype and, and snail mail. I can't find it. What's the size of the goal? And I know we hadn't decided yet whether we were going to make it tall, long, you know, how was it going to be? It had to fit into the boards. So I went into Dr. Joe's office and I said, okay, time to decide on, on the, um, on the goal. And uh, I'm standing in the doorway, and he looks. He said, uh, you're about 6'2". Let's make it 6'6 six, six by, God, I don't remember, maybe 12. I think it was 12 feet wide. And I got back on the phone, and I said, oh, yeah, here it is, 6'6 uh, six, six, six by 12. And that was it. So we, every day we had calls like that. And we had six franchises. Uh, the method was we went to the arena. Earl and Ed had a background with, with the Spectrum in Philly, which of course was five years around that time, five years in a row was deemed the, the number one arena in America and Ed Snyder. So we'd go, they'd go to buddies, uh, at, in different cities say, here's an idea. We'll give you, um, maybe 12 dates. I think we played 24 games the first year. We're going to have television. We'll have local television, find us an owner. So they did. So it was Philly, New York, Nassau Coliseum, Pittsburgh, the old Igloo Civic Center, uh, Cleveland out in Richfield, Houston, the Houston Summit, and Cincinnati, I think it was Riverfront Arena, the Cincinnati Kids, 10 guys, including Pete Rose, put in $100,000 for that team, and we had ownership in we were starting December 22nd, and uh, oh my God! Well, let, let's let's back up, yeah. back up for a second. I, I, before we get to the beginning of that, where does the idea of indoor soccer originate? Uh, uh, where does it come from? Because I think some of your work prior to that was a bit of a uh, an almost oh, like yeah. an unwitting right. stepping stone to that, right? With the Philadelphia Adams, oh, the old Philadelphia Adams, oh. Tim, I've been trying to forget that for 40-some years. <laughs> well, we, we can't um, forget that. Not here on the show. We, I know. I know. You won't let me. And that was an incredible thing, too. I I did get into it before. I guess I was between jobs. I must have been be, before the Inquirer. Oh, I don't even remember. But I do remember it was 1976, the bicentennial year, a huge event in Philadelphia, multi-millions of dollars spent on infrastructure. I lived at the time two blocks from the, the Liberty Bell and Convention Hall, that whole area is going to be a big event. And two years old, earlier in 74, uh, the Philadelphia Adams were born, the NASL, the old NASL. 
and they won the league championship in their first year. I'm now in Las Vegas, where the Golden Knights, the Vegas Golden Knights, uh, you know, have have won their division, and they've set all kinds of first-year records, and they're the best, you know, rookie franchise ever. But I know that the Philadelphia Adams um, won that first year. Uh, the second year, you know, they didn't do as well, and uh, the construction guy who owned them folded them. The NASL found a group of five for professional teams in Guadalajara, Mexico. There are five Division One teams. Guadalajara, very, very similar to Philadelphia uh, in, in size and education and hospitals and medicine and things like that, history. So the four of the five teams banded together, having seen the U.S. Olympic team in 1974, which wasn't very good. So banded together, said, we'll put our players together, we'll go up there, and we'll win the professional league in, in um, America. That was their idea in 1976. <laughs> so... Um, Ed Tepper, who that's how I met Ed two years before he called me and said, um, I need, I'd like, we, we hadn't, we just met and I interviewed with him under the stands in Franklin field, old university of Pennsylvania, Franklin field, and, uh, about doing some PR for him at that time. And, uh, he sent me to Dallas. He needed a representative for the PR meeting. So I said, yeah, I'll go. And, well, I guess there I became the PR director and uh, of this team of, of owned by Mexico. So I came back and uh, we had, we, they gave us uh, our schedule opened on uh, Easter Sunday, which was, of course, horrible. Then we played on Mother's Day, July 4th, no, July 6th, but it was bicentennial week. That was horrible. It was just, just terrible. So I like to say, I don't like to say, but it's, I do like to say because it's funny. I think we were the worst franchise in the history of American professional team sports. Why? Well, we were in dead last place. We, it was just terrible. Um, Although we did beat the Cosmos in New York in front of a big crowd, and Pele called it the most exciting game he ever played because we scored a goal to tie it with two minutes left and scored a goal to win it in sun death overtime a minute into overtime. And at that time, nobody else ever played over sudden death overtime. So Pele said, this is the most exciting game I've ever played. And we had a, one big crowd, and it's when – uh, it's, it is when uh, Pele came back uh, to Philadelphia to, to play the, uh, that game. We lost that one. So we lost. We were last place. The poor muchachos from Guadalajara were playing on AstroTurf. That was, you know, just terrible. They played the, you know, South American style of ping, 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 passing it around. The NASL at the time was an English league, which was over the head and power. And, oh, they just got knocked all around. They were a group of 15, 16 guys put in three crummy apartments in South Philly. The food was bad. They weren't with their family. 
Um, just all, it was just horrible. We had no money for marketing. We had nothing. There were three people on the staff. Um, we drew bupkis to 60,000 seat Franklin field on the, on the bicentennial game that we had or July 6th, I think it was, I announced the attendance at 1776. It was actually a little bit more, but I figured, well, that's a great number. So I had to be the first guy in history to take off numbers instead of, you know, elevate the number when you announce attendance. It was horrible. There were a lot of fun things about it. But the thing that made us worse than anybody else, because there's been other horrible last place teams, no attendance, all of that, is no one on the team spoke English and we were in Philadelphia. So I learned Spanish. That was pretty good. Uh, and they, they dissolved at the end of the year. The poor guys went back. Only one player ever played professional soccer again in Mexico. They went back in disgrace. It was, re- it was really a shame um, because they thought they were going to win, of course. Well, what do you think? I mean, what did you think? I mean, uh, this is interesting to me. I, having been a, a fan of the old NASL for some time, and sort of coming of age around that time, actually, uh, I this is an interesting story that I've never really sort of heard about before. I I wonder what was going through Commissioner Phil Woosnam's mind at the time, right? I mean, this is almost a this is actually almost a prelude to, you know, the uh, the experiment that was Chivas USA in the '90s and early 2000s in, in Major League Soccer, right? Where I, I can't imagine I, it must have been some level of desperation, I guess, by Woosnam to keep a franchise in Philadelphia, given the fact that there was new mar- there were new markets and San Jose mm-hmm. and Portland and Seattle and you know a lot of a lot of growth and stuff. I guess he this was this was a, a sort of a, a last ditch effort for a last ditch effort. He says for uh, stability, uh, despite you know a new a new ownership and and just uh, just frankly to get a team you know fielded for another year. Remember they had won the championship two years early and and of course in Philadelphia in 1976 percolated some energy. Bobby Rigby, who was from from Philadelphia, was the goalie. They were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So they had a little something going. And the only the biggest difference between Chibas and and, um, and and what we did in Philadelphia, it, well first of all many years, you know, thirty, forty years and the growth of soccer in America, but they were in Southern California, close to a big and a bigger Hispanic, you know, uh, audience or population in Southern California. We were like, you know, if we suddenly put an NBA team in Reykjavik, Iceland, it's, uh, you know, it, it probably wouldn't draw, you know, ice cubes. So, um, I, I think this, uh, I think you're absolutely right. It was a huge amount of desperation, which which was always the case in the NASL. And frankly, I, I my judgment is is the case in every one of these leagues that that you you know put your spyglass on to. It's always desperation. In missile, when the season was over, we I know personally we go through like a little mini depression. The season's over. Is there going to be another season? How many people are going to keep their jobs? Who's going to have jobs? What's going to happen? We never knew what was going to happen. It was always desperate times. So, yeah, that was that was the same thing. So you went back to sports writing then, I guess. and, and, and... I, I, I did, 76. I, first of all, I did say to Ed after the second week, 
Ed, why are we doing this? So he said, to learn about soccer and about soccer people. He never mentioned the indoor soccer. Although, when when, uh, the players from Mexico got off the plane, South Philadelphia, we immediately took them to the spectrum where, this is before the season, three weeks before the season, where we played an indoor soccer game against, I don't even remember who it was against, some, uh, it was a team from Washington, but I, I don't know, it wasn't the diplomats, it, it might have been, I don't remember. So we marched them into a locker room there, and um, they thought this was their training facility. We didn't tell them any different. But we took them out before the game, kicked the ball around on this AstroTurf again, which they had never seen, and then we handed out some uniforms, and, and they suddenly got the idea that uh, there was a game, that we were playing a game. And they said, no, we, we, we don't know how to play. We don't know what to do and everything. So I went in and uh, kind of had their return, what they thought were their return tickets and started ripping them up. And they used to call me Loco Berbo, which was verb, but also I had a beard, a full beard at the time. So they went out and played, and of course they loved it. They loved playing it, and, and they won, uh, you know. And and so and we had a little bit of a crowd there. I don't remember, but it was four or five thousand people, probably more than we ever had, except for the big uh, Pele game. Uh, so we did play some indoor soccer, and that was the idea to see how fans you know, reacted and to see how people and players and all of that stuff. So what it did for us, that one horrible, incredible experience was taught us we don't like outdoor soccer and we don't want to be involved with that and soccer people were purists and all of that. So, yeah, then I went back. I did go back to to writing some at the Inquirer for a while. I was the South Jersey sports editor um, so I, I did that for a while and I, then I went on to, to train, uh, yeah, we're out of, uh, out of order here, but I don't have any of this written down. No, this is, this so, is great. No, but so, okay. So, but so have to, I think it's important just to go back to that, that experience, right? Because, uh, and, and as aficionados will know, there was even a, uh, an actual, uh, indoor exhibition at the spectrum two years prior to this, uh, yeah, the team red from, army from Russia. Right. So. Right. I guess that that's it's good backdrop for what ultimately yeah. became that call when you get tapped, uh, maybe in the middle of the night. I don't know. Somewhat of it seems yeah. full of intrigue uh, from right. Messrs. from Messrs. Tepper and Foreman. Uh, maybe right. where we pick up the story. So, how do you get ensnared? How do you get dragged into this fledgling major indoor soccer league, especially given the pro soccer experience that you had just literally gone through the year prior? I guess in '76. Well, as far as that's concerned, I'm like a defensive back. I have a very, very short memory. Now, at my age, I just have a bad memory. But um, I forgot about that. It was something new and different. And I was an idiot. Why would I leave, you know, a good job covering whatever I was covering? But um, it was uh, the pioneer in me, which I found out later on which sometime maybe five hours from now we'll get to the other things that like this that I've done. But it just, I I found out over the years that some people, you know, will go out and do different things 
and and whether they they never think that it's going to fail, they think it's going to be successful and unique and just to be different and all, and they have that spirit about them, you know, Lewis and Clark, Armstrong, what whatever it is, um, you know, there's some people, and then there's a whole lot of people who would never do that. They would never think of doing something that they're not getting, you know, a good, knowing that they're getting a paycheck every week or every other week. It's just, it's just the way you are. And I happen to be extremely fortunate to have had these opportunities just to be in some place where some guys decided that they wanted to Americanize soccer because soccer was the number one sport all over the world. And most Americans were closed mind to, to think, well, they're calling this the Baseball World Series. It's not the World Series. It's not, you know, they're, they're playing baseball in other places around the world. But we were provincial and, you know, empirical. Is that the right word? Where we would think ours is the only thing. So Ed and Earl saw that so there was something to soccer and that it was going to grow. And it was growing, even in the 70s. Uh, you know, these kids, when they grow up, they're going to be big fans. It never happened. It still hasn't happened. So that's, that's why I got into it. And I thought it would fold in a year. But it was just an awesome, incredible experience to be able to start that thing. And then Earl was such a genius to know the way, having gone through the ABA experience, which also was had to be similar. Of course, it was his money, but it you know had to be similar. Uh, where they had you know guys would come in and and uh, want to be you know the owner and think that they were NFL or baseball baseball owners. Um, so we all had this idea that he would send Joe Macknick and I out when we got a new franchise and we went from six the first year to 10 the second year and he would send us into a new franchise area for whatever it took to get the franchise rolling and to most importantly um, be sure that what he used to call Earl used to call the brother-in-law effect and sure enough I'll give you an example I go into Wichita we used to call them our Green Bay our Green Bay Packers in Wichita, owned by a good guy who had big hat, lots of money, I think oil money. And uh, so after the an announcement and all of these big pro sports coming to Wichita, they left me there with, with this guy. And so we're, we're talking, and, and Joe Macknick was there too. And uh, we said, so what's your thoughts about who you're going to have run the team? Oh, I got it covered. I got it covered. My brother-in-law, <laughs> I, I just cracked up as soon as the guy said that. And Joe kicks me under the table. And Joe was a, a player, so when he kicked me, it hurt. And uh, I, I, the guy said, my brother-in-law has been involved in soccer here for quite a few years. He's going to be our general manager. So I said, well, how was he involved? Oh, he was with, uh, with the youth teams, and he, he coached his uh, sons and daughters. So... I immediately, I thought, what would Earl say? And Earl would say, that's wonderful, and he'll be, I'm sure, a great season ticket holder for you. <laughs> but we have professionals here. Joe, would you give him, I think his name was Becker, will you give Mr. Becker the list of professional coaches uh, who can serve as coach and general manager? And that's the way, the very first one we did, and I'm thinking, 
And Joe and I look at each other and, and say, oh, Earl, he was such a genius. And Earl's off. We were in Ballakinwood, Pennsylvania. And Tim, I may have tried this on for you, but quick little trivia question aside to break up all this monotony. What two professional leagues had their headquarters in Ballakinwood, B-A-L-A-C-Y-N-W-Y-D, pronounced Kinwood, a, a, a Welsh word, had their headquarters in Ballakinwood, Pennsylvania? Which two? Well, I know one of them is the Major Indoor Soccer League. Okay, got that one. Uh, what a guess. But um, I, I, you got me on the second one. Well, I will give you a hint and say this would will not be, I don't think, you'll never have someone from this league on your podcast. In other words, because you only deal in the dearly departed. So um, it was the NFL. Burt Bell. Huh. And, I, and I say that thinking, well, 30 years from now he might. Um, uh, Burt Bell, who owned the Eagles and was the first commissioner and headed up the league, he had an office in Ballacan, which is right on the city line of Philadelphia, right by Villanova, V for Villanova. Good for them. Um, hate him as a temple guy, but good for them. Uh, so, yeah, so we were in Ballacanwood. So we, but Earl's office was like outside of Washington. So speaker phones were just, you know, a new thing then. So Earl would yell and scream at all of us. He was like, a maniacal genius. He was on that fine line be, between everything. And we always had to be by the phone. So, so that's what I did. So you can imagine I went into places. Then I was fortunate to go. I did St. Louis, but that was a short one because Ben Kerner, who owned the old, who brought the St. Louis Hawks to, um, to St. Louis, he was the owner and he was older and all crusty old guy. But um, so he knew he had a pretty good idea. And St. Louis was, you know, another big, huge soccer area. Um, so that was pretty good. And um, Stan Musial was one of the owners. And I got to spend a lot of time with him, an absolute saint of a man. And uh, wherever he walked in St. Louis, people got up and, like, applauded him. Uh, it was really something. So, um I didn't have, there wasn't a whole lot I had to do there. I spent two, three days there. As a little aside, uh, one of the days there, I got a phone call from uh, Terry Lewicki, who was um, uh, the kind of co-director, I guess, in Houston, and the guy who literally built the, the goals, the first goals uh, that, that we used um, in a trial thing in Houston. Uh, he called me and said his little brother, uh, was looking for a job. He had been in insurance and did, did really well, was in the million dollar club or whatever. So would I interview him? So I said, sure. And it turned out to be Tim Lewicki, who has been one of the, one of the biggest guys internationally, a huge name in sports and the sports business for years now. So he's, I'm proud to say that I kind of gave him his first job along with many, many others that are, that are in the business. So that gave me going from market to market to, you know, I'm a sports writer. Did you, was that a curveball you hit? You know, how does it feel to cover, you know, Julia serving to, to learning about all this business? I never, I, I knew accounting. I got A's. The only A's I ever got in college were in accounting. I got out of business when I had to take economics. That was a, like a foreign language. So I, I didn't know anything about business 
or the business of sports, which was really kind of in its infancy, infancy to what we know now. But I got my master's by going around to city to city and to seeing everything. I also learned television because um, I was at every game, so I helped uh, produce. And one time, the the production people couldn't get into Buffalo, and we had a game. And the same Terry Lewicki, who was the, was the television committee, said, I'm going on air, you're going to direct. <laughs> I said, I don't know how to direct. He said, you'll know what, there's four cameras, you know, you'll know what looks good, you've seen every game. And I did it, and, and it was fine, and I don't know who was watching, but just one more piece that I, you know, that I got to do. Were just, you guys, so were you and, and Terry, uh, uh, and I'm guessing Kyle Rowe Jr., were you guys doing the uh, the old, uh, the first season of uh, uh, the New York Arrows games on uh, Channel 11 in New York? Those games that, uh, that were taped late at night? WPIX, yes. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so okay. So I'll raise my hand. I was the one watching those shows. Okay, I was wow. ba- I was babysitting uh, local kids in in the neighborhood, and uh, sure enough, at eleven o'clock on a Friday night, there was this sort of. I, I it's hard to describe, and I, you know, people watching television back in the uh, in the late seventies, right? In, in, in eleven o'clock at night, it's on tape delay. The game was run, I guess, earlier that night, and this bright green emerald carpet just literally yeah. just popped a- a- across the screen. And what was this frenetic thing, this red ball and these colorful uniforms and stuff? And I was, you know, I fancied myself as a Cosmos fan at the time outdoor. This was like, this was, this was a, this was like a, a, a drug almost. You, you couldn't take your yeah. eyes off of it. Yeah. It was great. Well, you just reminded me of another story and, and of a man who did the play by play of that, Oh, he was just like, he did some network stuff, but he was big in Washington, big in, New, I think he did a lot of New York stuff. I can't think of his well, name. You're not but talking it was, about Al Troutwave, are you? No, no, no. Al was much younger, and we gave Al his first gig. Uh, and that was USA Network when right. we got on there with Kay Koplovitz's second, or, no, maybe uh, second or third year. But to go back during that October, de- December, um, one day, Earl, and they'd say, go down to the Spectrum, the studio in the Spectrum, but first stop at Kitty City, which was a Toys R Us in Philadelphia, and pick up every kind of ball you can, different colors. And um, we're going to, and you're going to throw them and roll them and kick them across a piece of AstroTurf in the studio there at, at the Spectrum to see which color was going to be our ball, because traditionally then uh, the soccer balls were white. The NASL did put a little color into it, but they were white all over the world. So I did that, and, um, you know, I I never, (laughs) I was so naive and didn't, there's so much that I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. I never asked, well, why am I doing that? That's silly. I just went and did it. And then, you know, kind of figured out, oh, yeah, well, this makes sense. All right, now I got it on vid- videotape, if you will, and went back, and we threw it in the old three-quarter-inch machine and looked them all. And the, without a doubt, the best color ball was a deep pink. And we kind of decided, nah, we, we can't have a pink ball. Just call us sexist. Not at that time, but we didn't. So the next best one was a reddish, uh, you know, a reddish-orange ball. 
that kind of left a trail, and we were major indoor soccer league, M-I-S-L, Missile. We already had named the program magazine, Missile Magazine, M-I-S-S-L-E. So there was a trail to this, and I piped up with, we'll call it Rocket Red. So I got to name a color. I mean, come on. Who, you know, every once in a while I go to a Crayola box of crayons, you know, and check if they ever pick up that color. So that was great. I'm looking in my office at, here's another throwback, the four color separation. For you kids out there in the audience, whenever you needed, wanted to make a color photograph, you had to separate the four primary colors. There's none of this digital stuff at the time. Then you smacked them all together four pieces of film and that gave you color. So I'm looking at that in my office. So yeah, it, you're right. It popped. And when you saw it on television, you almost stood back and said, wow, now you would say that about video games. That's what happened. We were a video game before, you know, literally video games. And in fact, um, and again, I'll, I'll take some credit for this. Um, they, uh, sports, so I got sports illustrated. I was actually, I, my job was to be the PR man. And, and so I was a PR guy of the league and I got sports illustrated to come out and do a little short on us. And they called it human pinball because inside around the box balls hitting off the side, you'd purposely shoot a little bit wide of the goalkeeper. So it'd come right back into the slot and he put it in the goal. Uh, so it was called Human Pinball, and it was great on television, and it fit in a two-hour window. And we had not, we didn't have too many fights, although the ones we did were tremendous. And we had two-minute penalties, and we called them um, man advantage instead of power play. And we had uh, sudden death overtime, and not too often we did, but a lot of close games. Because we Joe Macknick trained the referees the right way, and we had a, we had forty percent of the crowd were women, which were extremely high at that time. And why? Because it was a bunch of average-looking guys running around, average-sized guys running around in their underwear, and with the lights and the music. And that was one of the biggest things that we did. We made these introductions of players into a show. And uh, guys like Tim Lewicki did that in uh, St. Louis and Baltimore and every place that he went later, Kansas City, and made it bigger and bigger and bigger. And people came for the show. And the truth is, if you're in an arena, no matter how many people are there, if you turn out the lights, people are going to go ooh and ah. And then you hit music and spotlights and tracer lights and all kinds of smoke and all kinds of things that we threw out there that the rest of the sports world said, you're making a travesty of this. This You're making it like a circus. And we said, it beats the hell out of getting down on your hands and knees and begging people to come. And then, of course, a few years, a couple of years later, you know, you watched an NBC, NBA playoff game and you saw Chicago Bulls and from North Carolina, six foot five, you know, and they did the same thing in Chicago. So it became a thing. But that was one of the biggest pieces that we brought to professional sports. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's absolutely uh, true that uh, the MISL at the time was was very much breakthrough, and, and it's in many respects. Uh, and you can, you know, you can 
you can do the homework and check this out. It was, you know, it, it certainly was the uh, the instigator for what is now just frankly commonplace in in yes. in sports. But let me ask you this though: it sounds like uh, so, and we had our you know our previous conversation with uh, Michael Manchel and, and with Dr. Joe Bachanik. Um, it, it almost feels like there, you know, with with uh, Terry Lewicki, it almost feels like there was some like this, uh, I don't know, this uh, unspoken uh, advanced crowd. It almost feels like you guys were an advanced team, if you will, uh, sort of being sent or deployed to markets either uh, current and wobbly or uh, potential and uh, needing uh, assistance, so to speak. It almost feels like it was like the the family sort of going out to the uh, to the the franchises and, and sort of making sure that everything. Uh, would be okay, or or if not, needed to be turned around and become okay. Is that a fair assessment? It seems kind of interesting. Oh, well, well, we most definitely, and what Earl had us do with a brand new franchise was a precursor to that. It was like um, predetermined that these franchises were going to have trouble, of course. So we we would go out in, in advance, and yeah, we tried to help franchises. One of the things that in my time in other sports, but I was always amazed about how you go to a league meeting and you sit in there with all the marketing directors, all the PR directors, you know, different meetings, and nobody would share anything. And it was like, wait, guys, the guys on the field are competing. And let's face it, they got to do well for you to do well. But you have to have the platform set up. So let's share these things. If your if your colleague in in Pittsburgh folds, that's going to weak you know weaken you. The edict of pro sports is you're only as strong as your weakest link, and then it starts you know a steamroll effect where franchises are dropping out. You don't know who's in, who's out. You don't know about ownership every every year. So yeah, we we did that. We we kind of, I don't know that we didn't actually have an advanced team, but we worked a lot together. Terry Lewicki, he had, he didn't really have the television rights in many cities, but what he did was while he was working um, for the Arrows and John Luciani and Bernie Roden, he kind of created his own little production company. So he would go out and he would help teams with their with their telecast, and um, you know had the benefit of of course first of all the experience, um, but then also the benefit of having footage so he could show little highlight packages of other games from earlier in the week, and he helped teams get on in their in their local markets and you know it was before the days that. Um, Regional sports markets, RSMs, were, were were the thing. People, the sports visions of the world were still trying to carve out a niche. People paying for for their television program, come on, that'll never work. And you know that was just starting to happen. It was still the PIX and the you know the UHF stations, uh, WPHL in Philadelphia that would carry sports and you had somewhat of a chance and Terry would go in and would help the local ownership sell it in and then produce it for them. So in that way he was, I continued to travel all over the place and the league continued to grow maybe too fast, maybe not, but we, um, you know, owners right away find out that they're not going to make money. It's how much money can they lose? This isn't the NFL. 
Um, not that the NFL, well, the NFL was making money then, but the other leagues really weren't. So, and we, you know, encroached on a number of cities, their hockey and their NBA teams. We were, you know, just as big in some of them. We were outdrawing some of them. Uh, and there were tough times for the NBA and the NHL uh, at, at the time. So um, we made a bit of an impact. But we also had um, Earl. Earl did all this. Ed kind of dropped off at one time. He took the rights to the, that he had to a franchise and opened up the New Jersey Rockets and didn't fare very well there at all. I think it was one year. Be careful now. You're talking to, uh, and I think we mentioned this on the phone previously, <laughs> you're talking to one of the uh, actual uh, only season holders. Uh, to I the know. New Jersey Rockets uh, that uh, did not even last a full season. Yes. So that that's yeah. a team that's near and dear to my heart. And perhaps if Mr. Tepper is uh, still uh, willing and able, uh, we could talk about that one in, in another conversation. But uh, oh, yeah. let's, 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 let us not forget Fred Gagurev and Alan Mayer and Timo Lukowski. Uh, we can go on. I was just going to say Timo Lukowski. Yeah, sure. And far be it from me to tell any tales out of school, but – Maybe one day Ed will pay off Timo's American Express bill. But <laughs> that's another story for another time. Um, the, I always did get paid. That's one, that's one thing. Not much. <laughs> I learned later on, oh, did I undersell myself. But um, not much. But it wasn't about the money. It wasn't ever about the money. It was always about the doing. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly. Uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis, uh, the Major Indoor Soccer League with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. 
and that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. Let me, let me ask you, I got two yeah. quick questions that I think that are related here on, on this front of the MSL. So number one is, when did you kind of know that you had kind of struck a chord or a nerve with, uh, with a certain type of sports fan? Because uh, obviously outdoor soccer in a number of markets, New York especially, but, you know, Tampa Bay and Seattle and, and San Jose, I mean, you know, was, was – yeah, uh, you know, and here you had this sort of uh, indoor version of the sport, right? But you know, obviously, after a few years, the roles were reversed, right? And and indoor was really so. I'm curious as to when, like, at what point did you kind of know that you know you were really sort of onto some kind of uh, ascendant uh, sort of version of the sport? And then second, maybe related, and this is sort of related actually to some of our previous conversations in other sports and other leagues and teams. Why did uh, Foreman and Tepper not perhaps? Uh, think about this as a single entity versus a franchised kind of model uh, in the beginning days where they could exert more control, or was that never sort of the business model in their mind? Because we've heard time and time again from various people, if they could ever do these sort of new leagues over over again, you know, to start yeah. sort of with a central control and then sort of work their way into franchising. Two questions. Sure. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> You're making me laugh because I love like the rare times that I listen to talk radio and a caller calls in. So I've got two questions and they they never get two answers. They only you know get one answer, and usually it's the second question. I'll remind um, you of the second one. Then, oh yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Um, no, it's the first one you got to remind me of. So there were a couple of different times that I thought we've really got something here. Well, the very first week, Earl and I are flying from game. We we had five six different dates for our openers. And the third one, we did all right in Cincinnati, all right in Pittsburgh. I think that was the order. And uh, the third one was Philadelphia. And we're hearing that they're selling tons of tickets. And we literally fly over, you know, the spectrum in the South Philly complex and the airport's pretty close. We're flying over, and this might not be true at all, but I swear that I looked down and I saw like a line around the spectrum for tickets. And it turned out that we sold it out. And in, you know, my hometown in Philly, that happening, it was like, oh, my God, this is just amazing. And when they put on, they didn't do much of a show, really. But they had a great mascot, Sakaru, was a great, great mascot. So he was really good. So they didn't have to do as much of a show. They didn't. So that was one time when we went from six to 10 teams and one of them was St. Louis and they hit it really big. They did really, really well there. And with a unique, uh, still to this day, I don't think ever match. They were literally a hometown team. 10 of the six, we had 16 players on the roster. Four of them could be foreign. Let's say 12 of them had to be American. So the 12 in St. Louis were all from St. Louis. Incredible. So you go to the old Checker Dome, 
And you'd see a whole section, and that was Sam Bick and Steve Petcher and Ty Kehoe. And then the four foreign guys were like just really good guys, good solid guys. Slobo Ilyevsky, who's the goalkeeper. Oh, I just heard Carl Rose was a Canadian. He was a defender. Uh, the little guy. Oh, who was the little guy? I just had all their names in my mind. I was just about to say, amazing, I remember them. Well, there were four. One was a Scotsman, and there were four. Tony Glavin, and the four guys, and they were just taking in the great big arms around uh, these guys and just welcoming, adopted. And you'd go there, and and it, they were really hometown players. So that was the the next time that I really you know felt that we had something. We we had USA came into it. We didn't get any money from it, but at least they were on. We were their first sports that they had, and Kay Koplovitz had the idea. She was the president of USA Network, um, and she had the idea of you know having sports and that that would help the network. Uh, so seeing the way, you know, an upgrade in production and the, the people doing the games and all of that was good. We did an all-star game at the garden. We never had a team in, in New York city, but we did an all-star game there. And, uh, people from CBS, Bob Wessler, uh, the president of CBS was there and really loved it. And he got involved in it. So there were things that were, there were, more pluses than minuses, and you saw the minuses, you learned from them, but, you know, you carried on. And then, of course, you had the question was about the comparison with the outdoor soccer. And, you know, we were in, uh, first we were in a fight with USFA, United States Soccer Federation, because, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't want us around. I don't think they feared us at all. But they just didn't want us around. They were losing control. We we would have joined them, but they didn't want us around. It made us tough tough for our referees. We wanted to get quality referees, and uh, they ostracized the referees. And we, they were full time referees for us. I mean, it was only four months of the year, but they were still full time. So they ostracized those guys who you know were their top referees and would have worked a World Cup game somewhere in the world and and. Later on, they let them back in. So that and the NASL, and they had their own league. And when we had our first couple of years, they came back and tried it. So then the next time I saw it, I was actually in the NASL. I went to Chicago after five years in the league office. I wanted to um, put into play what, what I um, learned. And I'd only go to a major market. And Chicago at the time was our biggest market. In, in indoor soccer, our biggest market where people knew them. I mean, people didn't know the arrows in New York or the lasers in, in uh, L.A. But in Chicago, because they won the outdoor championship in uh, 81, the first championship in 17 years there, they knew them. They knew who this thing were. So I went there. It was Earl Foreman made a trade with um, Lee Stern, who was a commodities trader, and they traded – uh, the president of uh, whose his name escapes me now to to become the deputy commissioner of the MISL, and I went out there to become the president of the team. Oh wait a minute! So, so, so the, you actually executed a trade, actually of uh, of of office of a front office folk between leagues that were kind of at each other's throats, especially in the indoor. Well, 
Well, no, but the trade was made. Oh, yeah, you know, you're right, because at that point we were, we played the NASL. No, no, the Sting were already in the MISL and the NASL. So, yeah, Charlie Avranian was his name. He went there as deputy commissioner. But let's not get carried away. There was no paperwork or anything like that. Uh, you know, they just, you know, without a little joke, because because Lee was a commodities broker. So I always used to say that Charlie was nothing but a, you know, bag of beans or something like that. Some ham hocks. I don't know. Before, so, so, uh, before we get to the sting, though, yeah. which obviously it's its own chapter. Uh, I just well, want, to, I want to tell you the difference is that when yeah. when. They, when they folded, we in Chicago were very good outdoor and very exciting outdoor. But no one came to see us because they had already had a taste of indoor soccer. So we won the championship in 1984, and we were playing both. It was year-round. Logically, it made sense. You paid the players year-round contract. You had a staff. One plus one should have equaled two. It didn't. It equaled minus one. In, in strange sports business math, it was bad. There was no time to breathe. You, fans didn't know where you were playing, when you were playing, what sport you were playing. The staff was just dead. It's amazing I have any hair left. And uh, the players were like, it was too much for them too. And then we went to the championship game. So three weeks before our indoor started in Missile, we played the championship game in Toronto. We won. Frankly, I couldn't even tell you who we played. I, I, honestly, I don't remember. It was so inconsequential. And the day after we won, the NASL folded. So that, of course, was a time where I said, wow, this is, now we have no other soccer even though all that time I'd been saying, we don't have any soccer competition. You know, the, the purists used to say to me, wow, the fans won't like this. I said, what fans? You don't have any fans. They didn't, you know, they didn't have any fans, the NASL at the time. So that was a big time, uh, too, when I saw things happening, they, they could really, you know, continue. Out. But on the other side, I also saw lots of franchises dying, Teams moving, some a couple guys, Dr. David Schoens that I think at one point owned three franchises, never good. And they were good ones too. <laughs> you know, Baltimore, Kansas, they were the best franchises because the Lewickies were running them. So there were pluses and minuses, and eventually the minuses went out. And Earl would, would, would be tough about not just letting anybody into the league you know, you, you write a deposit check and you're in the league because we need another team. That didn't happen. We had good people, but good people run out of money, run out of interest. Owners, I learned quickly, they're the worst thing about pro sports. Um, they, they're successful biz, businessmen with big egos. And uh, when they get into pro sports, whether it's a toy or not, um, they have unrealistic expectations. And their their business acumen and their morals go flying out the windows. They forget all about those things and do stupid things and, and all that. If you run a franchise, and it's still true today, but back then for sure, you run a franchise, your number one job is managing ownership's expectations. 
and that can be just impossible sometimes. So they were the, you know, some of the touchstones. I'm sure I forgot many of them. And, and in every different market, there were different things happening that were, they were good and bad and all. But they had to all grow. You've got to grow at the same time. It's so hard, so hard to do. Um, and you're in your own little bubble. It really doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. The economy matters, of course. But it doesn't matter what the other teams are doing in, in a market because they're all there. They were there when you got there. I'm talking about the major teams. They're there when you leave. So you just have to do your own thing and keep carving out your own niche and keep pounding on doors and finding the ones you want. It helped, as I mentioned, about 40% women. That was a big help. You can grow a fan base you know, with that. They don't have to play. You went for youth soccer. Yeah, that was important. You played you know, youth soccer games on the carpet for five hours before you played your game to get people in there. Yeah, you did all that. Played in major arenas all over the place. That was, They were expensive. They helped us out. They gave us breaks on, on different things. Um, when I got to Chicago Stadium, the deal that I had there was just unbelievable because they wanted us to succeed. They wanted us to turn on the lights. Well, so that was that. Yeah, it's interesting. What was the second question? Well, I, well, I was going to get to the whole franchise versus single entity thing, but let me sort of roll with you on this one. So, I mean, it it, it does seem though that you know in the early '80s, right? Uh, this is really the the momentum around outdoor soccer really started to to leave the building, so to speak, and and indoor really became the thing for soccer, and and to the point where, and you mentioned the collapse of the NASL. We'll get to that in a minute, but. You know that the the only game in town circa 1985 post NASL dying was the indoor game, and uh, you know in some respects, right? So you look back in time and go, well, it was those were dark days, quote unquote, for soccer. Well, well, hell no, actually, it was arguably it was uh, you had captured lightning in a bottle. The sport of soccer played in a more perhaps Americanized and an exciting style. I think there are some some real nostalgists out there that look at, you know, the, the rumblings of, you know, futsal and, and, and whatever, uh, the, the major arena soccer league, which is hardly major if you look at some of the facilities they play in today. But, you know, the, the, there was quality sport in the MISL at that time. And it was, for that, for a period of time, the only soccer game professionally, literally in town. I just, it, just to me, it almost seems like you'd almost created a monster, so to speak. Uh, you know, in, in, in what, at least on some levels, was a very successful product uh, for in a lot of markets. Well, that's true. I, unfortunately, it wasn't a monster. It was, it was a death by many cuts. Um, it wasn't a monster. And, and actually, uh, I would turn around what you said. Uh, the NASL, outdoor soccer, professional soccer, as we knew it, um, died in, in the early 80s. And we were the ones who had momentum that was a, a that was a little more positive. So yeah, but you're absolutely right. And in fact, to that end, uh, something that I, I shared with you on the phone that I'm strongly considering, and I have the feeling I made some commitments today that we are going to do a 40th anniversary of the start of Missile uh, this December here in Las Vegas and have a reunion. And I've started speaking to some people to, who are documentarians who are hooked by the very idea of the only soccer in America in the mid-80s. 
and and that's what we were. And it really was a different, uh, you know, a different form of it, very much so. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's what was going on then. <laughs> and again, remember, I wasn't a soccer guy, so uh, to me, this was it was. It, it was something different than soccer, you know. It was exciting, and 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 one. Listen, I did, I did. Um, how many? It seemed like eighteen years. So I guess total, I did three years of outdoor soccer, and of course, I I respected what what the game and and what was played, and I learned how great, you know, like a great pitcher's duel, how great a one nothing soccer game could be, and the flow and the build up and the different styles and. The nuances, I learned them, and it was like, you know, I love all kinds of sports, so they, it was all great. I don't quite understand curling, curling but, the, you know, uh, that was, um, which is huge here in Las Vegas. Believe it or not, curling is big in Las Vegas. They just had, or they're having the national championship. They do very, very well here every year. Who knows? So, um I got to get my broom some way. I'm, I'm not sure. But so all the other sports, um, you know, it's the same stuff. It doesn't matter whether they wear shoulder pads or, you know, shin guards. So I, I did come to really love that. And, and the great thing all the time for me with soccer was the international scope of it. You know, and the people that I met and on that Sting team, I think we had 13 different nationalities on that team. You know, it was great uh, talking to these guys coming together. Why you you were a, a pretty big time pro in in uh, Germany? Why would you come here? You know, uh, to to play soccer. How else am I going to get here? That was the end. Any names that uh, come to mind? Well, of course. I mean, everyone from. Carl Heinz Grunitza, who he was the franchise in Chicago. Um, Ingo Peter, the defender who was, I, I think, played on the world on their national team at some time. Arno Steffenhagen was a, uh, did not play indoor soccer when I was there, but he was very highly regarded as a person and, and as a player. But there, there were there were many of them. Um, uh, Sanino was a wing who played on some of those big Cosmos teams. He, and he was uh, from Portugal, and he was just the ultimate gentleman. And he played, uh, and even played, it was a little tough for him indoor soccer because he was a slight guy, but, and he was a little older by that point. But it was, it was great. Uh, Franz Machu was, was from Haiti, and, and that was the time in the 80s when AIDS was rampant and, you know, all over in America. And many people thought that it started in Haiti. And here was a guy that was loved. He was in that 81 Sting NASL team that won, and he was just the, the stalwart of the defense, strong as could be, with a big, bright smile. And here people are saying, oh, stay away from him. He's from Haiti. So... It was, you know, lots of them, uh, some guys from Chile, all over. And even my first year, the, I, I make fun of Los Atomos in 1976, but what an experience traveling around with those guys. And, uh, you know, they knew what they uh, quickly realized what they were in for. Let's have fun. We're here. So we had fun in a lot of places um, uh, when, when we would travel. <laughs> I could tell some great stories about that, but um, 
you know, so it was, that's the beauty of, of soccer, really unlike any other sport, except maybe now basketball. And, you know, you look at the NBA, I think it's a third of the players are foreign born, maybe more. And, you know, they're <laughs> damn good players and they can play. So were there, were there any uh, uh, unique uh, challenges to, to marketing uh, the Chicago Sting in the, in the city of Chicago? I mean, was Lee Stern a help or a hindrance? Uh, you, you clearly had uh, a number of different uh, locations uh, to play your games, especially on the outdoor side. I mean, it was almost like bingo cards uh, in terms of like what, what week and what, what stadium you would be playing. And uh, I'm just curious as to what yeah. your experience was generally like marketing one team uh, in, mm-hmm. in Chicago, especially one that had just won its first major championship in 81. And you had that sort of behind your, uh, in your, in your sales. Right. Um, and way to throw a good leading question with the Lee Stern aspect. Um, I could start there for sure. Uh, I got there in October of 82. Um, so they had already played the 82 season, having won the 81 season. And frankly, they sat there and waited for the phone to ring and it didn't ring. So they had no bump from the 81 win, which was during the baseball strike. You know, if you asked right now, 20,000 people, did you go to a sting game or better yet? Did you go to the championship, which was somewhere else? I'll bet you they'd have 20,000 people say, Oh yeah, I was in Toronto for that. Um, they had a huge crowd, I want to say 47,000 at Comiskey for, for the, one of the playoff games. So, uh, but they didn't, they didn't improve anything uh, after that. So I got there, I, a bad, it, they had considerably a, a bad year, a down year compared to the um, year before. And I was really marketing two teams, an outdoor and an indoor and I wanted to do good outdoor. It wasn't that I was against that. I figured that's, you know, you play what's in front of you. The, the calendar says there's a game July 15th. It's an outdoor game. You, you have to market it. It was very hard to do with not much money. Um, indoor, uh, I, I got to say this. When I look back, and it's many years now, I should have fought more for staff and for um, education, which wasn't really uh, available then. Now it is. Now, you know, you can go and the MLS has a wonderful program where they teach people how to sell tickets. And then those people, when they graduate, have all these teams to pick from. And that's the best entryway into pro sports. We didn't have that then, but I could have done more of that. I could have fought more for, for staff. I could have shown how, give me X number of dollars for staff, and it'll mean this much that we'll take in. We didn't do a lot of things that, that we, we would now, without a doubt. Um, so it was, and that's, that's really a regret. Um, Lee... Stern was everything that was good about soccer in Chicago and everything that was bad about soccer. He owned the sting. I think it was just a shade under 20 years. I estimate he lost probably $25 million all by himself. 
<laughs> he bought the first championship in 17 years. He had early on, he had coaches and general managers uh, stealing from him. He maybe to this day doesn't even know about because they would play a game of, they would make a deal for a player in Europe, buy a player in Europe. The, the general manager in Europe would get a piece and, and his guy would get a, a piece in, in Chicago. And um, so we had a lot of that. You're right. We played, we played in Wrigley, Comiskey, and Soldier Field. We played our indoor games at the stadium. Uh, my last year or so, I started working with Rosemont Horizon to bring a couple games out there, very good arena, in the suburbs, as opposed to, you know, on the west side, a tough west side of Chicago. Suburban soccer people maybe wouldn't come in there. So uh, it was all over the place. Uh, the Cubs didn't want us in Wrigley. Comiskey put up with us because Lee was a part owner. And Soldier Field was a city, you know, but it was, you know, huge. And, and you couldn't get any kind of atmosphere there because of the bowl, the way the bowl was and uncovered and everything like that. So we played in front of you. didn't even know that there were people there. And we played very, very good outdoor soccer, exciting, high-scoring games. Uh, Willie Roy, who was the coach, in indoor soccer, you have to coach some. It's not just throw your players out there, train them well, whip them into shape. There's no plays in outdoor soccer. In indoor soccer, there's nuances. There are hockey nuances, some basketball nuances. Players have to come on and off. In outdoor soccer in those days, it was an insult. If you took a player off the, off the field sometimes, off the pitch, I'm sorry, they would undo their shoes and walk in to the, right into the locker room. They didn't even stay and watch the rest of the game. Indoor soccer, two minutes, big boy, you're all. Carl Heinz wouldn't come off the field. <laughs> he just wouldn't. And he only played one end of the field. And, and in indoor, you had to play both sides. Outdoor, you don't. You have to learn to go in one door and come out the other. We would get killed with that. And Willie would not learn any of it. Even after we stopped playing outdoor, and even after he knew he had the best talent in the league, uh, you know, maybe up there, arguably the best talent, and he would not win as much as he should win. And certainly we never won in the playoffs. And he wouldn't learn it. So, and I had nothing to do with the players at all. One, I, one player I helped on his contract, Pato Marhedic, who was one of these guys that when he touched the ball, indoor and outdoor, you got out of your seat. He was a magician. So I helped with that contract. I got him, uh, we had a jeans company that was a, and Marshall Fields and the jeans company got together, put in some money for his contract to to keep him in Chicago. It's the only one I ever, ever did. And, you know, Lee would yell and scream at the referees. He once reached over, the, the, not over the glass, but the opening in the glass to grab at one of the referees. Him and Willie would bitch and moan at them. My first missile game there, they just start. You know, they think for sure that they were jobbed by the referees because they just got into missile and all that. And I, I'll never forget them walking down after bitching to the media. And we had some good media coverage there. The Tribune, the Sun-Times, and the TV stations, radio stations, they covered us which was great. 
they were just up in arms with the referees, and yeah, this is your first game in a new league. And I'll never forget them walking down the hall, and I said, guys, you know, referees, they're human too. And they both turned around simultaneously and said, no, they're not. <laughs> so I said, oh, this is going to be a real issue. So Lee did a lot of bad things. He would he would literally call an editor. He'd be right down there at the Tribune, and sometimes mostly pulling papers off of the machine to off of the printing press to to see where the story was. Calling up editors in the middle of the night. And one time I said to him, uh, Lee, you know those guys. I'm, I'm talking to you from a former sports writer here. You know, when you call an editor and wake him up at night, he's not too happy about you telling him that a comma's out of place or something <laughs> like that. And he really looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? I said, Lee, they, I won't, you know, just uh, uh, part of the body that you sit on. I, you know, basically, I called him an ass. I said, Lee, they think you're an ass. And he was dumbfounded. No one had ever told him that. And I'm thinking... Who who sat in my chair before? And and Lee was not a guy that would come in. He never, like, ranted and raved at me. And I don't think he did at any of the guys that, that preceded me. But no one ever told him. I, I, I mean, some guys you work for, you wouldn't dare tell. But they never did. Not that that stopped them. But it calmed him down a little bit with some of those things. And and um, but maybe it was too far gone by then. Well, so it was, he, he was certainly. I mean, look, he was certainly a, is. Uh, and we we have a, an invitation extended uh, to him and and uh, and and uh, Kenny, his son, uh, has been gracious to uh, to to uh, uh, say yes as well. And we're going to get a conversation with him. He's based in Las Vegas as well. Um, a lot of a lot of sting stories probably to be yet unearthed. But you, you got to give him an enormous amount of credit. I mean, quite the anomaly, right? In that he. You know, began a franchise in the old North American Soccer League in the mid '70s when, of course, nothing was assured uh, successfully or, or otherwise, and and it was you know by the by the late 1980s was still at it in whatever shape or form soccer was in at the time, the MISL in particular. Um, uh, if I, anything, he was yeah. passionate, right? And and oh, I think he was everything that was good about it. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. But it was always when you're everything that's good and everything that's bad, it's two steps forward, three steps back. One step forward, one step back. That's the way it always was. And it didn't have to be. I clearly remember when we were, I think we were already out of outdoor soccer, saying to him, Lee, you know, let's do, oh, I, I did an all-star game. NASL all-stars against the Sting. That was great. I mean, it was absolutely great. And all the big and they had indoors, this was indoors. We had a great, a big crowd. We really, we did a dinner, the whole, everything that you would do that the big boys did. And it was tremendous. And we made some money. It was unbelievable. We made some money. The place, the old Chicago Stadium, rocking like crazy. A lot of media attention. I'm sure there was some, we did some television somehow. And um, so I remember going to him and said, Lee, you know, let's, if we just did special events, meaning all-star games or international games, you know, Chicago, second largest Polish population in the world, German population, okay, 
Then we, we control, we had incredible amount of camps and clinics that our players did, but they were our camps and clinics and we sold merchandise because we had a good logo and we, we corrected the, uh, the mascot. We made the mascot really something. We had a great group of dancers that taste the honey who worked, uh, they were a marketing team and they, they worked, did, did the, you know, the intros and halftime shows and all kinds of, and sold tickets too. So we had all of that going for us. And I said, Lee, let's just do this. If we got rid of the games, <laughs> we would really, you know, do well. And he said, you know, so what am I going to do? Buy another big boat? So it, the money mattered, but mainly from a win and lose standpoint, success, non-success, not success, failure standpoint. So, um, yeah, he was, I mean, he was tremendous what he did. And I know, you know, a well-meaning guy, you know, for soccer should be in every soccer hall of fame there is in, in America with, without a doubt. But it was very, 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 very tough. And he did it. He got involved. He had three sons and two of them were, you know, uh, in his commodities, were commodities brokers and did well. And they were good guys, good family guys. And then there was Kenny who played soccer at SMU and was not like the other two boys. And this was Kenny's passion. So Lee bought him a team, basically. And Kenny was involved. I mean, he did radio for us, and he was—he wasn't a um, like a, a nuisance in any way. Um, and he was in—you know—he was involved, and that's how Lee got involved, and why he got involved, and and spanned. I mean, what you just said—late seventies, what the NASL was at the time, and then you know the Cosmos—they were fighting the Cosmos all the time. They'd have six to five games. It was great stuff, and then. You know, what happened with outdoor, and then the indoor comes in, and I don't think Lee ever liked indoor because it was, you know, he won an outdoor championship. I always remember him and Willie Roy saying, they'll never take that away from us. And I used to say to them, why do you think anybody wants to take it away from you? Nobody wants to take that away from you. The business is what the business is. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. 
Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. Yeah, well, let's go back to the mid '80s then, or the, the mid to late '80s, right? So, okay. let's talk. You, you, the Chicago Sting. So, give me a sense of sort of, um, you know, the sort of end of times, I guess, when it came to the Sting and/or uh, your uh, work with the Sting, right? So, I'm really curious as to sort of the, the beginning, I guess, of the end of what was, you know, probably at that point the longest lasting, consistent. Uh, soccer franchise in the country, right? You're you're in the middle of all that, in the midst of all that. Yeah. That said, right, NASL has died, uh, not uh, ostensibly on your watch, right? Uh, the MISL is still powering along, uh, but you know some cracks start starting to starting to surface, and obviously you have knowledge of of how the beginnings of that league sort of got going. Um, what did you see on the horizon? Uh, no pun intended, or perhaps pun. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what, I guess, thank you very much. And what, uh, sort of, how did you sort of process that career wise? And, um, you know, uh, what were you seeing at that time? Was it obvious or, or not so, or, or what? Well, and, and that also can tail into your second question, which I do remember about the idea of the single entity. And, and I've got to say that, um, I don't recall that being brought up very much, if at all. Now, maybe Ed and Earl thought about that before and considered it and maybe tried it on some of the original owners. I don't know. I don't remember really ever hearing so much about that until, again, and and we'll get to this in the 16th hour of this show, my (laughs) arena football um, we were a single entity in arena football. Um, but as, as far as, uh, you know, the sting. So I, I left, um, and, and it was, it was time for me to leave. Um, and again, looking back, I should have, I never did anything about the players. I didn't want to get involved in that. And I should have worked hard to get rid of Willie Roy, because if we would have made the playoffs, uh, I mean, we made the playoffs, but we always got knocked out in the first round, and you know, always disappointing end. Um, we would have done gangbusters. We we would have set records in revenue and in tickets uh, and all, and we were doing pretty well. We were outdrawing the Blackhawks. And the Bulls, with that Jordan guy, had just started, you know, picking up. Um, we outdrew them in 82 and 83 and 84, I think. But um, I, I didn't do that. So life w- was miserable because I had, like, no staff. I kept having to cut it. And I don't know, we should have had more. So... Uh, so so, I, so this, I, is, this is the indoor stuff, right? That was basically the, and now indoor. And yeah. so at the very end that season, 
I decided I wanted to have a um, an All Star game, a missile All Star game. Back in in the uh, when I was in missile, I one of my things was to produce go into the city and produce the All Star game. So St. Louis, then it was Buffalo, then Cleveland, Kansas. I didn't do Kansas City. I was already with this thing, but so that's what I did. In fact, I met my wife. At, at the, uh, she was going to work for me on the uh, St. Louis one, which was just fabulous because all of St. Louis players. So um, uh, we did this All Star game, and it was bigger than and better than the one that we did in the NASL, uh, and it was it was fantastic. And uh, it was in the middle of the year, and after we made eighty thousand dollars on total net in for the two, three days festivities. And it was done very, very professionally. Again, just like the big boys. And Lee came in afterwards into the office and um, I don't even remember what was going on with the team or anything like that. And he had tears in his eyes and to, to fire me, basically. And I said, you don't have to do that. I'll, I'm leaving. And I had, you know, a lot of blood in my blood in the indoor game. And and I looked around and I saw what was happening and that, that depression and losing all these friends, good people who worked, you know, worked their hearts out and and ownership left and they were just, you know, out there. Some of them went to another city, some of them you know, didn't have another job in sports. And that it's, you know, hard to take over time. Guy, Lee, I, I went on one week vacation and Lee fired my marketing guy who had bought, brought in more money than anyone ever had in, in his organization, ever. And he fired him. And the, the guy did nothing wrong at, at all. So there was a lot of that stuff, and uh, just said, "Okay, that's it." And I and I said, "That's it about soccer." And uh, I'm going to, you know, just have to leave it, and I'll go, and I'll, I'm sure I can go and do something else. I'll find something. And by that time, newspapers had really died. So I was at the point where I was saying, "Boy, I really made a good choice because <laughs> it didn't work out." All my newspaper friends were trying to hook up with the Comcast of the world. You know, or the Yahoo Sports, or things like that. So, um, so yeah, it died. Uh, I left. They Kenny Stern uh, took over for me. I was, um, you know, Lee said asked me to stay for a month to so Kenny could consult with me. And I'll never forget. When I got back. I had a vacation planned in Jamaica, so I went went there with some friends and came back. And I was there Monday morning at nine o'clock. Where's Kenny? Well, Kenny never quite got the concept of like nine to five jobs. Not that sports was, but it certainly started at nine at least. Never, I'll never forget sitting there. And of course, the staff is all saying, "Well." What's he doing in here? And I wasn't in my office. I was in the conference room, just sitting there. Kenny finally comes in with his buddy, who was the uh, uh, Howard. Uh, I can't think of Howard's for did the play-by-play. Howard, Good guy. Howard Balson. Howard Balson, right? I was going to. There's another guy, Howard Balzer, who was a longtime um, 
maybe sporting good sporting news football writer, a, a guy in St. Louis who I knew from Long Island because he used to cover the Arrows. And he's a big time like national football guy. So, and I always get their names confused. So Howard, who was a prince of a guy, such a nice guy. Um, but he, you know, shepherded Kenny around because of the uh, because of the radio stuff. So they walk in finally, and I'll never forget Kenny or Howard saying, "Well, where's all your notes and your stuff?" And I said, and of course Kenny didn't even have a notebook. I said, "Kenny, it's all in my head. I've lived this for years. I know this stuff. What do you need to know? Tell me. Uh, you know, ask me. I'll tell you." Now that went on for about a half a day, and I don't know, Kenny lasted maybe three days. I mean, he still was the president of the team, but I don't think he did very much. The season dwindled on. Uh, nobody did much. And next thing I know, um, I hear that Lee had taken a, um, a partner for the first time ever, a guy who owned a um, – I forget what it was called, but it was like merchandise, you know, different little, you know, the pens and all of those things, the cup holders that with your logo on it, that kind of stuff. Halo, Halo uh, advertising. And he had made some good money and he was, he was a sponsor of ours. We used him and, and all that. So they, um, he took him in as a partner, uh, a guy who used to be the VP of marketing for the Bulls took over the, running the team and they announced that they were going to play all their games at the Rosemont Horizon. Okay, I wasn't going to do that. I was going to play a few. Um, but they were going to play all of them. And uh, unfortunately, what they didn't know, because they didn't know, was that the Rosemont Horizon, the, the, um, the floor was kind of... Um, well, no, not the floor, but the seating when you got down, when you put up boards, when you got down to the to the bottom, the first few rows, which are some people think the best seats right on the glass, they were below the field level. So your eyes were kind of at field level. It wasn't good. And they, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I really... I was not involved. I was looking, what am I going to do next? But they had no idea what they were doing. And well, it was did, actually a point of order here. So didn't yes. they, it didn't they, or you, or maybe this was after when the, uh, the uh, subsequent uh, minor league AISA Chicago power came in. I remember, I think I remember clear plexiglass, right? Where there were actually no boards so that they could yeah. issue. Yeah. Well, that's what they had to do, but you were still Sitting down low, it was, you know, I know Vanderbilt, uh, college basketball, even I think last night in, in San Antonio, the floor was, yeah, you're on a stage. Well, those first, like, it's like you were sitting where the players were sitting, but you had boards and yeah, they, so the expense, what do you think the expense was of, of that, that plexiglass? You know, that was something it didn't, it was horrible. It, they, they. It was bad enough that that was it. Lee Lee stopped. It folded. Cleveland Cleveland was still solid. Kansas City was in a bad way at that point. And 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 frankly, Tim, I you know, I I walked away and didn't look back. And in fact, now that I'm starting to talk to people again about this reunion, I realize I've I really 
I had maybe four or five people that I've talked to over time. One guy who I was pretty friendly with for quite a while, John Kowalski, the coach at Pittsburgh and, and Cincinnati. We were friendly because we always wanted to do something again. When I moved here to Vegas, I wanted to bring a team here, and John was going to be my coach, and we'd do great. You know, if you have that partnership, it's it's tremendous. So I didn't I didn't know so much what was going on, but I know it failed, and, and Lee was out. First time he takes a partner, boom, they were I can't imagine how much money they lost. I was... Uh, my, uh, I, I want to say first season there, it had to be after the first indoor season, Lee called me on the phone, kid, um, I, I just put you into, um, into beans. I said, thanks, Lee. What does that mean? So he said, I bought you a unit of soybeans. So, oh, oh I uh, didn't tell why he did. Um, the numbers had come in, and I had lowered the loss. When I got there, the loss was $1.7 million. I had lowered it in a little over a year to $1 million. So he, he put me soybeans. So he said, don't worry, kid. They're not going to back up a truck and dump a ton of soybeans on, on your front door. So I said, okay, thanks for that. Uh, so I said, okay, thanks. He said, you did great. The numbers came in. You really, it's great, the stuff that you've, uh, you've done. I really appreciate it. Great. Next day he calls me, and uh, the market closes at 2.30, so I knew that's when I would talk to Lee. And I, first I would talk to his account man, Al Goldberg. Hey, how'd the market do today? And Al would say, don't talk to Lee today. <laughs> so that's, you know, that, that was my defining point. So Lee calls the next day, and he said, kid, you're out of the market. <laughs> so I said, oh, my God, I didn't even cook the beans. And he, and he said, yeah, you're out. I I put the money in your account. I didn't even know I had an account. I, I put the money. So I said, oh, what was it? So he said, $5,000. So I said, can we do it again tomorrow? <laughs> so he said, it's not that easy. So, and that's, that's the way he treated me, you know, which, which was great. And it was marvelous. And I, you know, I was living the high life. I was making more money than I ever made. It's, it wasn't enough. Had an apartment. We moved, bought a house or, a, you know, like a condo four blocks from Wrigley Field that was that was great had a car you know everything was great it was the winter time it didn't matter uh Chicago was great I had entree to everything Bill Wirtz loved me he bought he bought a new carpet um um uh Jerry Reinsdorf I get a call one day uh Mr. Reinsdorf would like to have lunch with you I said okay so I go over, he was American Express, he ran American Express in Chicago. I go into his huge office, and the first time ever, you know, they brought this lunch in on white tablecloths, and we sit at a table, and we're talking, and I quickly realized this guy pities me for having to work for Lee. Because Lee, like, Lee was, that was the old, um, was it, not called sports service, what was the one, Sports Vision was in New York. Right in Chicago, it was not Sports Center. I forget what it was called, but it was the, you know, they they started the regional sports market. They took the White Sox, the Bulls, the Blackhawks, took their games off of WGN, most of them, made people pay for. Do you remember what that was called, Tim? Yeah, what was it? Sports it was called Sports Vision. 
Well, what was in New York? There was something similar to that. Uh, I think that was. Um, yeah, I know. I can see the logo. I can't remember that either. But I'll. Yeah. I'll yeah. Well, Troutwig. That Troutwig. That's where he really got his. Um, where he got his start doing that, but whatever. So that was terrible. Oh, there was such a black backlash against, and the Bulls weren't that good, and the Blackhawks certainly weren't that good, and the, who really cared about the White Sox? And this thing where the fourth team, and I think Lee had 10% of that whole thing. So they all had to, you know, Lee was like a guy who sat there and, you know, these other guys, you know, Reinsdorf, a brilliant guy, and and Bill Wirtz, who was in the business forever, he, they would see the things Lee would do. I don't know if they ever talked to him, but but definitely Mr. Reinsdorf pitied me, and he saw what I was trying to do. Um, so, you know, he, he he they just had to fold it. I guess he just had to fold it. He lost enough money, the league was going, and and that was it. So, I was I was going. I stayed another year, kind of took it easy, looked around for some things. The interesting little side thing about me. Uh, the week or two after I left, and it was in the paper, I I always did my best to stay out of the paper, even though, of course, I knew all the beat writers and everything, but I tried to stay away because I knew that would bite me on the butt with Willie saying that I was undermining him, and I never did, and I should have, but I never I never did. I stayed away from that from them at all costs. And then, of course, it came back that Willie would say that I never cared about the team. <laughs> so it was a no, no win type of situation. So, um, uh, by the so, way, we, uh, we did check it's Sports Channel. Sports Channel. Uh, sports Channel was the uh, New York. Oh yeah, Channel. Sports Channel New York. There was all the different sports channels in in Philly. It was it wasn't called Sports Channel. They had their own name in Philly. Um, yeah, there were sports channels. Yeah, all, been, I think that might have been called Sports Vision. I, but the the irony is that all of those, I think all those uh, those three, I think Philly, Boston, New York, Chicago, actually all came together with a merger later in the decade. So, but yeah, you, you're, basically, you're basically talking about uh, you know the beginnings of pay TV sports. Yeah, uh, and and now it is now a very robust uh, marketplace. But so give me your so all right. So so your the the idea of soccer overall and Chicago, I guess, too, uh, very much in your rearview mirror. So what well, here's what happened. Yeah. Listen to this. Um, I won like opportunity to exit the sports business. Um, two weeks after I get back from that trip and I'm gone, it was a little bit little blurb was in the paper that I left. Um, I get a call from Bear Stearns, which was a big investment house in Chicago, Chicago, big money city. Um, and you know, they're calling me. I said, guys, I, I just, I don't, I don't think I said I got fired, but I've just left. I don't have any money to invest or anything like that. No, no, no. We want you to come in and talk to us about joining us. I said, as what? So they said, well, we want to talk to you. So I, I went in and talked to these guys and uh, they said, well, we'd like, um, obviously, you know, about business and we'd like you to come and join us because, you know, people, I said, guys, I don't know the athletes really at all. Um, and it's just not some of these, they said, but yeah, but you know, all the owners and you're a name in town, which I didn't think I was. And 
So I went back and, and talked with Linda, my, my wife, and I, I said, um, well, this is very interesting because I, I am good with numbers and quick, and I always had an interest in in the stock market and options in that area. And, and uh, so she said, well, you know, this would be a total change in lifestyle. Um, and she actually informed me that there was something called a weekend and that most people didn't work and they enjoyed the weekends because I, of course, always worked the weekends. So I said, well, let me go back in. So these guys offered me six weeks of training and I would have been making more money during the training than I had ever made, 20% more than this thing, and that was more than I ever made. I mean, this is nuts. So I, I said, well, yeah, okay. The day I say, okay, I got two phone calls, one from the Washington Redskins and one from Raycom Sports, which was the largest college sports syndicator in the country at the time. So they wanted to talk to me. And of course, I hadn't gotten any calls for a year. And now I get all this. So I say, let me just go and talk to them. <laughs> so I go to Washington and meet. They, they needed a PR director. And I meet with uh, John Ken Cook, Jack Ken Cook's son. And it was roughly four and a half minutes. And I said, guys, I'm not your guy. You think you can control the media and should. You've already said that. If it wasn't, you know, they sell newspapers because when we win or lose and people want to read about I said, I, you know, I, I, I'm an information guy. I would give them information. I know what not to give them and I know how to steer them, but uh, uh, there's no embargoes here for me. So thank you very much. I fly down to Raycom and I gotten to know a lot about the uh, television business because of, uh, you know, because of Missile. And I got a little production experience thrown in as a director. I love that. Did videos for, you know, produced our, uh, all of our advertising stuff. And, and so I really, I like that end, but I didn't know the business end. And Raycom was a mom and pop uh, organization. They had the, they had the right to ACC basketball. So that's all they needed. Um, and they, then they had some other conferences, two big conferences, all of them except for the Southeast and uh, the Big East. So they wanted to open up a PR and promotion arm, and they never had um, had one, either PR for the company or promotions on air to promote you know, their telecasts, their games. So uh, Rosa Gatti, who was the VP um, of PR at ESPN, recommended me. Rose and I were from Rose's a Villanova grad, and we were friends uh, from Philly. Uh, so I went down there to speak to, to the husband and wife, uh, Rick and D. Ray and Ken Haynes. And um, I said, well, I would do this. for I don't want to be a PR man, but I will do this for you to open it up. And they told me that they were going to get into entertainment, too. So I said, okay, that will be great. But I want you to teach me the syndication business how you clear stations, how you, you know, the advertising piece, how you make a deal with the conferences. So they said, sure. So they offered me the job. I went back, and it was in Charlotte. I went back to Chicago, told Linda, and uh, she said, sure, this is what you got to do. Called Bear Stones and said, I'm sorry, guys. I, you know, I'm a sports guy. So that was my one time uh, to get out. 
And uh, there's the bridge to what I did next. I went down to Charlotte. Very different. First of all, it wasn't Chicago. The weather was real nice. One day I got a call, and uh, and they said, well, don't come in today. I said, why? What's the matter? So it had snowed two inches. <laughs> they closed everything. That was really wild. Lived through Hurricane Hugo, which was a hurricane that came in two, 200 miles inland, knocked down a bunch of trees, all the power out for two weeks. That was great. And I opened up their PR and promotion arm, and um, they never got into entertainment. We, we had promotion set for different four series of four shows. The only thing they ever did, which was fascinating, was they syndicated a show done by uh, Graceland. It was called Elvis's Graceland, uh, where um, his wife took you on a tour. It was already packaged. It was already done. They did it twice a year on his birthday and the anniversary on his death. Did great, great um, ratings on it. I promoted it a little bit, but it did great ratings. But they never did what they wanted to do. So this was um, 88 or 89. The World Cup was coming to the U.S. I saw through my contacts with soccer, I saw an incredible opportunity for Raycom to become, to manage the media broadcast facilities for the World Cup. And I explained this to, to the husband and wife, and they told me, okay, go. There was some meeting somewhere. I went, and um, really, we could. this would be a big thing. It would be in Washington and, you know, 200 com- countries, 100 countries, whatever it was. So a huge money-making thing. I came back. I explained it to them. I started putting together some of the numbers. They really weren't having me do much of anything else. I would create budgets, and they... Things like, give me $100,000 and I'll promote the ACC, which is basically Atlanta to, to uh, Washington. I'll do that. What's one rating point increase worth? They say a million. So I said, okay, give me 100000 and it will turn it into a million by increasing one rating point from 16 to 17. They wouldn't do it. They had a group of us. There were three or four former ADs that were, would sit around. They, they wouldn't let us do things. So I went back at them about the soccer, and they said, no, no, this is, uh, you know, we, we, they were afraid. They were afraid to pull the trigger on the entertainment. So I went and found one to another meeting on my own, and I came back, and they, they fired me. They said, we told you not to go. I said, I just went on my own on a weekend. What? I said, okay, small minds and lovely people. Great. I'm going to see them next month in Hilton Head. But that was, that was it. I met a guy there. I went. The, all the three major syndicators were all in Charlotte. It was crazy. Um, what was the name of it? Jefferson Pilot, who had the Southeast Conference, uh, football and, and, and basketball and a few other things. They were a big insurance company. They were in Charlotte. And then Bray Carey, who had, uh, had a bunch of little conferences, uh, what UNLV played in, in. Back then, I think it was called the Big West. He had that. So he was there. So I went to talk to him about packaging things. And he had marketing and, you know, not not just selling the time, basically, but packaging it with marketing, uh, different promotions and things like that, that the schools would do for you. He had no idea what I was talking about. It was the beginning of that. He just didn't didn't see it at all. But I met he said, you should talk to this guy I have working for me, Jim Drucker. I knew the name Jim Drucker was the commissioner of the Continental Basketball Association, the CBA. And so I went and I talked to him and we sat down at, at uh, lunch in Charlotte 
and started talking and quickly realized that he was a major sport, basketball, in minor markets, and I was a minor sport, soccer, in major markets. So there's got to be some way we could fit this together. And as you can tell, as we're two hours into this, I can talk, Jim can talk, and the idea started flowing. So we sat in this place and for lunch, then it became dinner, <laughs> and we decided let's get together. And Jim said, okay, two things, and Jim's a real smart guy, Duke Law grad, and uh, said, two, there's two things I have to have. We're not going to do this nickel and dime like out of our garage, and we have to do this in Philly. And I said, well, why Philly? So he said, because I live there. I've been commuting down here for a year. So I said, okay. He said, you don't mind moving to Philly? I said, Jim, I'm from Philadelphia. I have a son there. I think they'll let me back into town. I'll grow a mustache. They won't recognize me. I'll be able to come back. I never thought I'd leave Philly because of great sports. And then I never thought I'd come back. So I did. In 1990, we went back. We started this company. It was a television company. Uh, We gained the rights to, Jim gained the rights to the Metro Athletic uh, Conference in MAC, the MAAC, Sienna, LaSalle was in it at the time with the Player of the Year, Lionel Simmons. And I gained the rights to the oldest and largest track and field meet, the Penn Relays. And uh, I had heard about something called Hoop It Up, which was a three-on-three basketball that Tim, you, me, and two other of your friends in Chicago could form a team and play in this. And I heard about it. It was a big thing in Dallas. So um, uh, I talked to them, called the guy, Terry Murphy, who started it, and he had gotten involved with Pepsi and Pizza Hut. And it was starting to cookie-cut it all around the country, eight different places. It did it in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, it rained. And uh, Jim and I promised that we weren't going to do events because it rains. But, of course, we were out there looking at this. And uh, Terry finally came to us and asked us, could we do it? And we said, we'll only do it if we could put it on television. And it was ludicrous. Who's going to put that on television? I mean, you know, it was you and me playing. Who's going to watch that? So we said, okay, we'll only do it if we can do it on television, thinking it'll never get done. We go into the... Fox affiliate in Philly, Channel 29, who had just taken over the Phillies' rights. So this was summertime, and we're talking to the station manager who starts asking us questions that are yes or no questions. Can we do this? Can we do that? And, you know, we're salesmen, and we say yes to everything. (laughs) So he starts calling in his sales manager. Can we package it together? We understood that. called in his technical guy, called in his production. Well, we can't produce it because of the unions. Do you know how to produce it? Yeah, we can produce it. We'll provide facilities. How about can we use these announcers, our, you know, our 6 o'clock news sports guys? Oh, of course we can. Everything we said, yes. Jim and I walked out. The the guy said, "Um, I'm locking the door. We actually have a deal. Uh, We walked out, and, you know, there's this rule you never talk about the deal you just did in the elevator going down because you never know who's in the elevator. We get outside and we say to each other, did we just do something that we don't want to do? And we said yes. And we started this thing that had had 400 teams the year before. We Television promotions, $80,000 worth of promotion, tied in with a supermarket chain there in, in um, 
in Philly, and suddenly we're looking at a thousand teams playing on eighty courts in a parking lot, Franklin Mills, out you know in Philadelphia. Do a two-hour live show from a place that's not in an arena. We're like all over the place. Kick it off with a slam dunk contest with a guy jumping over a car. This was 1990, and we've got this amazing thing. And, and within two years, we're doing seven of them, three in New York. We closed down, um, uh, not Penn Station, but Grand Central Station. We do it around Grand Central Station. We're out on Long Island. We do one in Baltimore, and we do one on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, right up, close Pennsylvania Avenue, right up to the White House. And we have them televised in every place. Now, um, Pepsi and Pizza Hut have gone to the NBA. NBA is NBC. They're televising them, but we're not on NBC's anywhere. But they're growing like crazy. In a Long Island event had 5,000 players playing on 100 courts over two days. We had one contest, everybody, one division, everybody in the four teams that had a transplant. <laughs> I mean, and now it's a pro, the, it's a pro league with the the uh, the big three, yeah, yeah, cube, yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So that was great. We started a uh, we said, well, let's do one on our own. We went to Herman's Sporting Goods and met a guy there who was a outlandish thinker, and we did a volleyball tournament, a beach volleyball, same premise. Great, did it in Atlantic City in front of Trump Plaza with Trump as the sponsor. And uh, that boy, I just you just I just reminded myself of a big piece when I was the director in between Raycom and moving to Philly. I was the director of the Tour de Trump, the bike race, um, the first one uh, that uh, NBC owned, Trump owned, Jefferson Pilot owned, and uh, it was going to be the Tour de France of America. And uh, I was not, but television director but a director and ultimately my job ended up after we got into the 16 cities my job was to make sure that donald as he was known then met the most important people person in every city i flew around spent you know close to two weeks with him it was great never saw anybody or any company spend money we had five color business cards in 1989 it was unbelievable all right, that was a little aside. Now we're back in Philadelphia. We're doing that, and we have um, we're, we're driving up to ESPN with about five different show ideas, and um, we start talking about. We had promised ourselves we were not going to do outdoor events or any league because of owners. We all run into owners, so we had a long drive from Philly to Bristol. And we start talking about different leagues. No, Jim, we're not doing soccer. It's going nowhere. It's done. It's dead. Forget it. Okay, so what's available? So the only thing really available was women's basketball. Well, we all we both knew, come on, Joe Sixpack is never going to watch a group of women, no matter how good they are and how skilled and how great to watch them play the game the way it's supposed to be played. They'll never watch it because Joe Sixpack knows that he could get on the court with them and beat them 
Whereas even if he thinks he could be an NBA player, he knows deep down, no, I can't be. I can't be an NFL player. I can't hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. But a women's basketball, yeah, I could beat them. So, of course, on the way back from Bristol, we decided to do that. <laughs> and the only way to, to start a women's league was if they could dunk, because most people, guys, Joe Sixpack, can't dunk. How do you have them dunk? Lower the baskets. So we created the Liberty Basketball Association. And Tim, with all your knowledge and all your great, you know, uh, delving into things and finding and research, I bet you don't know too much about the Liberty Basketball Association. All I know is 1991. Very good. And we... uh, uh, we went out, same format of, oh, my God, I forgot all about arena football. <laughs> that was, that no, was we'll, the we'll come back to that. I want to talk we'll about the Liberty back. Basketball okay. Association. This is a hidden chestnut that wasn't even on the agenda. Go ahead. The Liberty, the, agenda, right. the Liberty so, Basketball Association. Let's hear it. LBA. So same format as missile and arena football. Go to the arenas. They're landlords. They want to turn lights on. Find us ownership. By that point, the regional sports networks had really built up. So we went to five or six of them. They, oh, this is great. Went to ESPN. Did a five-game deal on ESPN. And um, everything was, we were cooking. So let's do a all-star game of course you do an all-star game before you ever have a sport so i called a friend at the palace of auburn hills who who handled entertainment tom trose and i knew that he was crazy enough to do something different he gave us president's day monday noontime maybe two o'clock okay but the schools are closed and you know that's pretty good it, I think it was, well, February. So February in Detroit, that's that's pretty smart. So we put this together. We get, uh, Jim gets one of his old CBA coaches. Uh, I get Dick Harder, who was the Penn, very successful Penn coach. Took him into the, I don't think the Final Four, but the Elite Eight. But on his bench, his assistants were Chuck, Chuck from the Pistons, who was later the, uh, he was the coach of the U.S. Olympic team, the the great team, Chuck. Oh, he passed away, Hall of Fame. Can't think of it. Um, Raleigh Massimino was on that staff. You're thinking about Chuck Daly? Uh, Chuck Daly, yeah. of course. So Dick Carter was the main guy, was the Hornets' first coach in in. Chicago and Charlotte. So we got him. He was between jobs. We got him. We got 20 women players and um, Danskin. We got four sponsors, AT&T, Minolta, Danskin, and can't think of the other one. Could have been McDonald's. Danskin said, how about if we create unitards for these players? A year before North Carolina State, Jimmy Valvano, I think it was a year before, maybe four or five years ago, um, he had the players playing unitards. Uh, it was kind of interesting. With shorts over them. 
So we said, sure, of course. So now we're in Chicago, two days of practice, learn that women don't know how to dunk because they never think of it. You and I think, oh, yeah, we, if we had that ability, we could dunk and we vision ourselves. They don't do that. And a couple of the women were 6'6", six, six, one was 6'3", one was 6'4", good athletes. We taught them how to dunk. Oh, by the way, the ball was smaller and the court was a little smaller, too. They played, they practiced, they thought that, and there was no women's league at the time. This was great. Dick Carter said, I love this. They come to practice and they're smiling. You know, he's used to guys who, ah, another practice. So we go in, we're going to have the first ever women's slam dunk in halftime. ESPN is doing the game live. Scott Hastings, the crazy 6'11 guy for the Pistons, wearing a tux with sneakers. Um, and I can't think of who did the play-by-play. Um, so we're doing the game. People, We had 10,000 people there. President's Day, schools were closed. It was great. Going up and down, promoting this at halftime. About two minutes before the half, all the lights in the building go off. The telecast is shut down. ESPN immediately throws on tape of something. <laughs> Tom Trose from the Dallas comes over to us. Jim and I are standing literally in the dark. And he said, you made this happen, didn't you? What? So well, the girls can't dunk, right? And what are you talking about? <laughs> so I, I, to this day, I don't know if he was kidding or not, but I said something like, oh, yeah, we put a call into God and said, turn the lights off. We can't figure out. So the lights came on. The lights went off right before the dunk contest started. They had spotlights that we used, but then the lights went on. They did the slam dunk. There were two slam dunks in the game, breakaways. Uh, the six-foot-six girls were fine. The basket was nine feet, two inches. We had a big press conference in New York and where we announced that it's nine feet, two inches because women are 10% shorter than men so we made the basket 10% shorter than the men's 10 foot. Now, first of all, women being 10% shorter, we have no idea. We made that up. And if you did the math, 10% off of 120 inches, which would be 10 feet, would not be 9 foot 2 inches. No one ever checked, ever asked us, never said anything. It was nine foot two inches because I can't remember, remember the name of the company that made those movable baskets, but they, they're lowering it. They were able to stop. This is where it stopped. I don't know what the engineering was. So that's what it was. So we played this game. It was great. Had got some ratings. People liked it. The sponsors liked it. And the recession hit immediately. And uh, AT&T... Uh, called us. I'll never forget this meeting. We went up to see the guy. He said, I've just had a $40 million cut in my budget. Now, who even has a $40 million sports marketing budget? How many? You could count them on one hand. He said, I'm going to keep you guys. I'm cutting some of the people I've had for years, but I love this. It's a thing that's going to happen big, but I got to cut you in half. Okay. Minolta cut us totally. Danskin didn't really matter much. And I don't know who the fourth one was. So Jim and I said, well, put, nobody's doing this. We'll put it on the back burner. 
We went to the Women's Basketball Association, Coaches Association. Half of them hated us. You're, we want to we wanna do it the same as men, blah, blah, blah. The other half said, oh, a pro league. I could get a job. My players could become pros. It is exciting. You know, the forward-looking thinkers, the lockdown thinkers. Never, never came off the back burner. Went to see David Stern. Now, Jim knew David well because he had a relationship uh, with the CBA, the officials, and, and the start of maybe some players. Plus, Jim's dad was Norm Drucker, who was, I think, 40 years an NBA and ABA referee. So you always bring a tuna fish sandwich up to see David Stern. We went up there talking. He's listening. He's loving it. And a young guy walks by with a stack of videotapes still in there. He calls the young guy in. He says, what are you working on? He said, oh, I'm putting together a Michael Jordan highlight reel. Oh, okay, thanks. So David turns to us and says, so that highlight reel will make us, will net us a million dollars. You're asking me to go to my owners and tell them that this is a great new idea and we're going to get into women's basketball, which we talked about, but we're going to lose a million dollars. What do you think would work? <laughs> so he said, okay. He said, guys, do it. Start it up. If it works the way we think it'll work, we'll buy into it. We never did it. And uh, Jim and I had a bit of a falling out. He got sick. Some things happened. Ironically, he became the commissioner of the Arena Football League. Uh, hoop it ups were still going strong, but but um, I was the villain in that one. Little did I know Jim would go down every. Jim loved to negotiate. He over negotiated. He'd go down to Dallas and negotiate a new deal, and everything that went wrong was my fault. I didn't know that was going on, so that that was that was fine. Well, so that's so, so we need to, we need to put a pin on that one. So so the Liberty yeah. Basketball Association was 1991, and I, I a quick check right. of the internet, which is a, a beautiful thing. The actual yes, date was February 10th, 1991. There you go. And uh, you had 10,753 spectators at the Palace of Auburn Hills. Uh, do you remember right. the team? Do you remember the team names that were planned besides the Detroit Dazzlers? Oh, very good. I don't know. Chicago Slammers. There you go. Los Angeles Lancers. The New New York Blasters. And the Philadelphia Freedoms. A little uh, tip of the hat to the old UTT franchise back in the 70s in World Team Tennis. Very good. Um, good. So that's interesting. We have just discovered a new Forgotten Sports Nugget. This is pretty, pretty interesting stuff. I guess now the real challenge, though, and Doug, maybe you might know this. Uh, that game that was broadcast on ESPN, I wonder where that tape might be, and uh, wow. not yet on YouTube. Uh, so we put that out to our listeners. Anybody who might even remember vaguely in 1991 watching this thing called the Liberty Basketball Association, we got to find that video. Uh, and uh, our friends at ESPN perhaps can help us find that because unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to us, our listening audience, the one game of the Liberty Basketball Association now – Vividly remembered by Doug Verb. One and done. Has a different meaning now. All right, so but let's so let's get in. So, so let's uh, maybe we can uh, round up our, our our extensive conversation here around the uh, Arena Football League. So maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, how that occurred, why you got uh, dragged into that, and uh, especially for somebody who 
seemingly seems like he wanted to sort of maybe extricate himself from professional sports, but somehow didn't. What, what was the Arena Football League uh, uh, thing for you? What, what was that uh, all about? Yeah, well, first of all, I never got dragged into anything. I was a willing victim, believe me. Uh, I, I loved every piece of it. And I had chances after soccer, I had chances to go into the NBA and, and a couple teams and all that. And my wife, bless her heart, reminded me that, you know, you'll probably have some of one of your wild hair ideas. You'll go in and talk to them. They'll say, we don't do things like that here. And you'll be out the door. So don't, don't do that. And and maybe don't even work for somebody because <laughs> she really she did not like the two a.m. phone calls from Lee Stern about you know something going wrong or something whatever it was. So uh, so I but I loved every minute of it. So I I told you that when I went away um, on a one week vacation between games uh, and Lee fired my dear friend and uh, marketing director who was really good and made me look good. So it was three weeks before this season and I needed a marketing guy. And lo and behold, a guy named Jim Foster calls me and uh, said somebody recommended, he talked to me, he had been at the at, um, NFL Properties is what they were called. They were, that's a great story into itself. They were a nonprofit and where they used to, the NFL used to give away all their money, all that properties money to charity and to some of the guys who ran it. <laughs> but they didn't know that the guys that were running it were taking the money. But anyway, not Jim Foster, but other, the guys who were, who were actually running it. So um, Jim called me, and he's an Iowa guy, and he wanted to come back to Chicago. So I said, well, Jim... Come in, yeah, let's, come on, let's talk. So we were playing for some unknown reason. We were playing at some big high school, an outdoor soccer game. I don't know what that was, if it was training for indoor, I, who knows. But I'm sitting under the stands, and Jim comes in and takes out what has now become the famous manila envelope where he had all these sketches and everything. And I said, what's this? He said, well... Um, I was at the uh, um, All-Star game at Madison Square Garden that she did, and I kind of thought of, I was working for the NFL and kind of thought of the idea of, well, if they can do indoor soccer, why can't we play football indoors? So he starts explaining the whole thing to me. So I said, Jim, you know this is, you're, you're talking to me about, this is a job interview for soccer, right? So he said, yeah, I know, but you really, did, you know this stuff and you know how to do it and all that, and this is what I want to do. <laughs> so I said, okay, great. Um, uh, so I said, Let, let's concentrate on this and let's figure out a way that we can, you know, make this work. I can't afford you. We didn't even talk money, but I knew. So I said, but let me, I, I have a, an idea, and I, my wife was working at an, an agency, Burke Advertising, who literally, they, the guy created um, Outdoor Magazine. And um, so I said, maybe Burke really wants to be our agency of record. Now, the truth is, we don't have much of a media budget, and I 
produce everything anyway, you know, all of the creative stuff. So um, let's go in and talk to him. So we went in and talked to the guy, and um, the guy said, well, how about if I take Jim on and I'll pay him, and one of the things he'll work on is the Sting account, which is exactly what I wanted him to say. So he did, and Jim went to work there. And as my wife tells the story, Jim always had the door closed and he was taking phone calls about arena football. <laughs> so I said, okay, good. And he did what he had to do for us. Like I said, we had no budget. So what, you know, what was it to do? So when I was done, I called Jim and uh, uh, I said, okay, we're re- I'm ready to do this. So he had just gotten some money from an agency in New York, uh, some seed money. So we worked for about, I want to say it was six or eight months together in Chicago at, at our house talking on the phone. And Jim would work on the game itself. And I would work on, again, that formula, go to the arenas. I knew the arena people. Get, get, you know, get that moving. And I worked on some media. And at one point I said, Jim, we got to get something down on tape. We, you know, this is, these drawings, great. We can professionalize them. But let's, you know, really do something. So uh, he said, well, how are we going to do that? So I said, well, I have a friend in Rockford, Illinois, Doug Logan, who runs the building up there. And we used to play one or two indoor um, exhibition games up there. I think it's 90 miles from Chicago. Let me call Doug and see if we can get something together. You find some semi-pro guys you know here in Chicago put together with some coaches and we didn't even know how many players on the field, how we were going to do things. We knew that the nets were up, which I thought was a brilliant idea and you know, that kind of stuff. So I call Doug and say, um, I need your place. So he said, well, what for? And I said, well, I, I can't really tell you, but it's something you'll like. So he said, do you have insurance? And, you know, of course, I said, yeah, of course I have insurance. So he said, okay, I can give you a Saturday. I'm making this up. Saturday, March 13th. So go back, and now we had maybe four or five weeks to get this together. Jim gets a group of players together on the, on this, that same where we were playing that outdoor game. It was AstroTurf High School Field. We got the high school field, and uh, he starts training these players, and they didn't know what they were training for except semi-pro football. So um, uh, the one rule, and I don't, it doesn't really matter. I don't, I don't think it was my idea, but I love the idea. It must have been Jim's, was that the players would play man-on-man. In other words, Tim, you're the wide receiver for the Chicago Bulldogs. I'm the defensive back for the Philadelphia shenanigans. I'm covering you. When when the shenanigans have the ball, you're covering me. So it was really man on man. Because when when um, any Archie Manning, Archie Manning, when Eli Manning is on the field against Tom Brady, they're not against each other. They never even, uh, before the game, they shake hands after the game, but otherwise they're never on the field together. This way you did. Everybody but the quarterbacks. I thought it was a great idea. Also cut down on the number of players, and you had Iron Men out there, and people could relate to that. So we went up to, um, up to Rockford, had everything set, had one set of, of uh, netting. The players who didn't know anything about indoor, we never told them that. They come on, 
and now it's a flashback to the Adams. They thought this is where they were going to just change clothes. <laughs> we take them out onto the field and say, you're going to play a game here, and we don't really know what the rules are. So we get some videotape. They're really funny because the one thing we forgot was uh, a referee shirt. So Doug Logan found some striped shirt, and it's me down there with a whistle. That's that's a really terrifying thought. But So I'm down there, and we're trying seven men, eight men, all different kinds of things. We get a videotape. But Doug Logan, being the extremely forward-looking, bright, expansive guy, said this is the greatest thing in the world. It's football, and it's indoors, and the fans are on top of it. Hell, they can smell it. And I wanted that to be our, you know, our tagline. So uh, we said, great, that's wonderful. Well, Doug happened to be the president of the Arena Operators Managers Association, whatever it's called. He said, if you can do this again in a month, I'll get the 40 top arenas here to see this. I said, oh, my God, what, what could be better? So I said, how about a crowd? He said, just so happens in a month, the Rockford Marathon, the famous Rockford Marathon, will end right outside of our door. We'll bring everybody in after the marathon. So we did, he did his part. We did our part. We narrowed it in whatever the rules were, seven guys, whatever. Don't you know, again, we forgot the official's jersey. But we, um, I, again, was down there. And we had all of these guys looking at it, and we got stuff on tape, and it was exciting, and it was good. And we had, were able to really start going forward. Well, from a personal standpoint, um, the money ran out. And Jim Foster, whose idea was I was perfectly fine, second banana, no problem with that at all, and all but Jim Foster would do, offer me nothing more than 10%. And I said, Jim, it's got to be 51-49. You can have the 51. But, Jim, I've been in this. You know, I'm doing these things for you. You're doing a lot of stuff. But every media person you talk to was because of me, every arena operator. we got to be partners in this. And he wouldn't do it. It was his idea. He wouldn't do it. Wouldn't budge off of the 10. I said, see ya. And that's when I, you know, that's when I got the call from Bear Stearns and all that and went to, went to Charlotte. So um, that was arena football. And Jim stayed at it, stayed at it, stayed at it. I think it was three years, did all kinds of things, finally put it together, and the rest is history. And, and he did well with it. The bit, this is my outside view. I had nothing to do with it. I was always shocked that they were never able to really capture it on television. Great spectator sport on television. They couldn't. And he had ESPN, and I know the people, top production people. He had NBC as a partner. I mean, like a real financial partner. And they put their good production people. Couldn't capture it on television. Got the NFL involved. Everything. Jim, with his ego, was his undoing. He finally, um, Jim Foster, that is, he finally, they pushed him aside. They gave him a franchise, which he did in Iowa. The Barnstormers did well uh, with it, and they pushed him aside further. And uh, Baker, I can't remember his first name, guy who heads the uh, Football Hall of Fame now in Canton, um, he was the commissioner, and he did a good job with it too. They did well with it, but they just couldn't get it going. Get it going. And now, I don't know, they're down to three or four teams. 
And yeah, that was a single. It was a single entity. Yeah, that, and that, that was a, uh, and we've had uh, a couple of conversations with Jim in some previous episodes. And I think the, um, you know, it, it's a theme. It's a theme that keeps coming back. And I asked you about it earlier with the, uh, 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 many hours ago when we were talking about the MISL, uh, the idea of single entity uh, versus that of franchises. And if I remember our conversation with Jim correctly, <clears throat> it was one of those uh, scenarios where, uh, and we've heard this with uh uh, in our conversations about the uh, major indoor lacrosse league with, uh, uh, you know, in the same kind of conversation around this idea of the tension between wanting to control in a, in a sort of a, a, you know, a moderated kind of way, sort of in a single entity kind of a manner with the, uh, the chafing, I guess, of owners or, or investors or investor owners who uh, see the value of wanting to run their own franchise in the league and kind of have a little bit more uh, flexibility and the ability to sort of win championships and go out and get talent and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think Jim uh, would ref- reflected back and said, you know, that was sort of the beginning of the end is when he had to go, you know, uh, sort of bow to the pressures uh, of folks who wanted to franchise. And the same thing we, uh, we learned in our lacrosse conversations as well. So it's a very interesting tension. And, and this is a story that gets repeated over and over and over again for decades and, and even centuries back. You go to earliest days of baseball, the same kind of issues around single entity versus sort of franchising. And uh, and it still today to this day still is it becomes uh, a, a tension filled conversation about what's the best model for pro sports. It's interesting, too, because the very essence of when you think of franchise, you think of a baseball franchise or you think of a McDonald's franchise. And obviously, McDonald's, Burger King, every franchise is thousands of them now. They work. The difference is that they're all the same and that's what makes them work. And there's no competition. You know, they're not going to put another, uh, you're not going to compete with a McDonald's across the street. Sports, it's the competition, and that lends itself to people being creative in their, you know, we're going to, here's what we're going to do to put together a better team on the field to win. So I think people think that they should have more control, but the business side is totally different than the, um, you know, then the field side and, uh, it's never really seemed to happen in the most successful I mean, the NBA is successful because David Stern was a master at, um, getting, you know, consensus and getting the teams, the owners together about something. And, the NFL is successful because they've controlled the um, the union. Baseball has not been so successful because the union controls them and their costs are outrageous. Hockey had to go. You know, everybody, uh, Gary Bettman did the only thing he could do, create a strike, reset. You had to reset things. Now it's getting back up there again. But, of course, the franchise fees are getting back up there. The guy here in Vegas paid half a billion dollars for a franchise. The next one, the one in Seattle, I think is going to be $600 million. So, yeah, does the single entity work? I, you know, no, I don't think 
anybody ever really knows because none of the big guys could ever, you know, they're so big. They're, there's such a gap between the big guys and everything else. So I don't know. Can you do it? Do you, does it hurt you to try to do it? I don't know that, that it hurts you. Yeah, I, th- I think um, major, I think Major League Soccer are probably our biggest experiment right now, and then there's obviously a lot of tension from a lot of different circles around sort of pro soccer and, and why we didn't make the World Cup and all that kind of stuff around. Uh, is it time to, shall we say, uh, you know, loosen the belt a bit and uh, maybe, you know, the idea of sort of it being owner investors, right? That was sort of a, you know, our conversation yeah. with Russ Klein about uh, lacrosse that's uh, airing this week when we uh, record this show is – you know, is is sort of a hybrid of that, but it's still single entity. All the contracts are done through the league and all that kind of stuff. And and there are many who question, right? Despite the parity and the relative competitiveness of the product on the field, albeit certainly not anything near the European leagues, for example, uh, is maybe part of the problem. Maybe going forward, is that how do you get to those leagues' uh, uh, stature uh, and competitiveness and and world stage uh, value without uh, not letting go of the single entity thing at some point. I, you know, I think, look, MLS is 20 plus years old now. I always, I always envision, I always thought that the idea was, especially in tough times, Lamar Hunt and Phil Anschutz and those kinds of folks, you know, literally keeping the league going in the early 2000s when things were not so great and they contracted and all that. You know, the reality is that, you know, I think at some point, you know, it had, it was never intended to sort of stay as a single entity, and yet yeah, you're looking at 25, 26, you know, teams and franchises and stuff. At some point, you got to think that uh, it's going to go completely full franchise. But you know, maybe it's still not uh, it's not solid enough yet to to actually pull that trigger. You, you you don't know. You know, they, I guess, survived the worst thing that you can have, which is, I mean, didn't Anschutz own at one point? Wasn't it five or six franchises? Yeah, did, as yeah. many as that. Yep. And and no one really cared. It didn't matter to the fans. I don't think anybody stayed away or there was never any thought of collusion or anything like that. So does it really even, does it matter? Did, the real question might be, did anyone not get involved from an ownership standpoint because it was single entity? That's, I think, the question. But you know, you you can't really compare with soccer and the rest of the world because they, the rest of the world doesn't have football, basketball, and hockey, and baseball. So you, how can you compare that? Um, I don't know if there's really is there really a connection between the world, the national team, and and the league, other than if you could keep the best players here. And I maintain that most of the best players, if they were making more money, they would say, okay, well, yeah, I'd love to play in the Bundesliga or, you know, in England, but I'm making 10% more money by playing here and I'm home, then they would stay. And my overall thing about soccer is that until the U.S. national team makes the final four, it will never, it'll be a one-off special event. The MLS will never make money. Uh, you know, I just—it's uh, just the way it is because there's so much, so many other things. But if they may look, look what happened to look at the bump with women. I mean, a lot of people watch the women's national team. You get nationalism, and they were good, and they won, and it was exciting. They can't get a league started at all. No one, 
No one's going to watch that. And they just, they, they can't. The men, if they got it, the, the times that they, like, the, the furthest of what, did they make the eight, the elite eight? One year, one World Cup? Yeah, 20, uh, 2002 uh, in South Korea, in Korea, Japan, they uh, right. very very right. Well, there were a lot of people that were very, very excited about it. And now it's slid back. So they, you know, they should have, the next time, 16, I guess, they should have made a run for the Final Four, and they slid back. It wasn't because of MLS, I don't think. It just happens. But when you're young, and they're still young, you, you can't afford those uh, missteps. Because a misstep will slide back four years, but put you back eight now, eight or 12 years, right? They didn't even make it this year. So they have no opportunity. I mean, not this year, but 20. They don't have no opportunity. And well, we, we, shall, we shall see. I do think that yeah, I do think soccer is, is is unique and different in that it is truly the world sport. The United States is not the uh, the supreme league, uh, or frankly, the only place where the sport is played, which was yeah. you know, largely the cases for for uh, most of the other major uh, sports in this country, right? So, you know, I think the only real test will be when the uh, sort of artificiality, those shackles of of single entity, are are sort of released and. And MLS then, you know, and the teams and the franchises and the individuals who might own those franchises uh, can maybe go at it toe-to-toe with some of the world's best players, uh, world's best teams with talent and all that kind of stuff. Because there's no unending riches, it seems, with, you know, the Champions League and, and all the teams in Europe and that kind of stuff. And I, my sense is that some of the folks in in the league now sort of eye that and want to sort of get competitive. And and the, the artificiality of the way the league is set up will not allow them to compete for some of the best talent, um, without the ability to more have more flexibility to do so, so we'll see. Well, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I I guess that's true. I just don't know how many, you know, big money people will you know would want to get in into that mode. Like if you look at England and how they've brought in, you know, oligarchies and you know, oil men and and all of that. And in fact how much of the big money people have now in America have gone over there? How many American owners are there in the, in the English leagues? There's a number of them, aren't there? Sure. Sure. Well, it's, yeah. it's it, it'll to, to be seen. I mean, you know, the MLS oh, has absolutely. its way to 28 to 30 franchises and, and who knows, and we're still in a decent economy, although, you know, you never know what happens. Right. And you've lived through a few of those, busts yeah uh macroeconomically all right so let's uh let's round the curve here what um give me a sense of what you're up to these days and uh what, what do you want to promote now let's uh, also re- remind folks about uh what you're planning for december i think it is in in las vegas yeah. um for the MIS, misl reunion yeah well I, I i am planning i'm really going to have to get to work on it now but i've gotten some real good feedback from a number of people that want to be part of it, and um, I'm going to have to go and talk to the uh, some of the big properties here, the casino properties here, see how they can get involved. Also, there's a, uh, a team here that's in hiatus, the Las Vegas Legends, and there's some facilities. I don't know if uh, players want to play or do they just want to get together and drink and eat and reminisce and tell tall tales. I, I don't know. So I'm, I think what I'm going to do is put out, you know, some feelers, ask some questions, 
see what people respond to. I'm, I'm not sure the Christmas time idea, uh, you know, if that's a good idea, the day, the way the dates work out. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it, and I, I, I feel good about doing it now. Uh, you know, in, I think we still have enough time, so it'll be great fun. It's been really good talking and reminiscing with people, uh, and, and even sad to hear some of the people who have passed away that I, that I didn't know about. Chet Messing, who was our first player um, uh, that we signed in a big deal, did a big press conference with him. Uh, he's all for uh, the NASL, not the NASL, but there is an NASL, um, I think it would be their 50th, what is, I don't know, but it's something that they're doing in conjunction with the opening of the new Soccer Hall of Fame in uh, near Dallas. So they're doing something, uh, I've heard. And Shep told me that he didn't want any parts of that, but he absolutely would do ads. He said, I loved uh, missile and indoor soccer. And I was really kind of surprised, pleasantly surprised to hear that. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I, I, I have a large part of my business, no pun intended, is the world's largest jersey. I, I've done that for 24 years now. It's a proprietary product. I gave up on the hot dog launcher because I was a little afraid, uh, dangerous of people falling out of the stands trying to get a hot dog or a T-shirt that was propelled into the stands. And um, so I do that. And, uh, of course, here in Las Vegas, all of a sudden in three years we've become a sports, you know, we have the hockey team that has done done very, very well beyond expectations. We have the Raiders coming here in uh, two years, three years, uh, two and a half years, I guess, building a uh, $1.8 billion stadium here. Uh, We, the state, gave the Raiders $750 million to come here, build a stadium, twice as much as any municipality has ever given anybody. And I might add... um, Nevada as a state is, and this is not a joke, is right down there with Mississippi and Arkansas at the bottom of the education list. Uh, I don't think I have to say anything more, Uh, but I'm thrilled that they're doing it. I just wish the money was put somewhere else. Um, And of course, it's just going to be, you know, a a, a point, uh, maybe 0.2% added fee to, to room charges. So we're not paying for it, but we're paying for it by not having, you know, the education that we need here to grow. Uh, thrilled about that. Uh, there, there is a soccer, a USL soccer team that uh, um, Las Vegas they've, Lights. They've done, the Las Vegas Lights. They have done brilliant marketing and work. Um, tremendous stuff. The marketing director, the owner, who. Um, uh, did the same piece in Orlando. He um, started with the USL team and grew it. He didn't own it, but he worked it and grew it to, uh, I think it's a successful MLS franchise now. He's doing it here. And they've really, I went to the home opener. It's good energy around. They're playing it where the 51s, the baseball team, who attract nobody because they do no marketing at all. Uh, they're playing there. The field is real close to the stands, which is nice. 
the 51s are moving into a brand new stadium in Summerlin. So next year, the um, lights will have it to themselves. So that's good. And we also now have a women's WNBA team owned. How things have changed. Three years ago, you couldn't get any pro team to talk about, you know, Las Vegas because of the gambling. The worst being the NFL. No one in Las Vegas will ever call it the Super Bowl, the big game, the championship game, because the NFL sued Vegas a number of times. The NFL wouldn't take the Las Vegas visitors and convention authorities money for spots uh, on the Super Bowl or or anywhere in the NFL. Now, (laughs) we have not only the Raiders coming here, but we have a WNBA team owned by MGM hoping to show that they can make that work to get an NBA team here. So it's a very interesting atmosphere here. Um, dying to see what happens to the Golden Knights when, uh, when the Raiders come here. Well, I've been here 14 years now, and early on I was contracted to do two studies on the viability of professional sports. And I got to say, after some very in-depth studies, I ended up saying, I don't know. It is a small media market. There's now two and a quarter people, which is great, but they work 24 hours shifts. Um, Very small media market. The the Golden Knights found out that there's no regional sports market. Who's going to do our game, put our games on television? They found some AT&T something somewhere, and uh, bet most people don't know where to find it, and as you know, the biggest problem with hockey is you can't watch it on television unless you really know it. So that's been difficult. Haven't found out what their ratings are, have been. Town is, you know, buzzing about how well they've done and the great, they have done great. They're great to watch. I love watching them. They're good. They do a good job at the arena. It's a nice arena, the T-Mobile, and they do a good, obviously they do a good show. It's Vegas. And um, there's no marketing money here because you're either the big casinos or you're an entrepreneur. Zappos is here, but they do a little something. They do a lot with the soccer team, which has been good. Um, So it's going to be a question. And the seven-digit deals that the hockey team has been trying to do become eight-digit deals for the Raiders. The seat licenses for the Raiders are going to be minimum $5,000. The average ticket price of the Golden Knights is $88, which is a pretty good price. And most people, the individual people that bought season tickets, bought them knowing that they could sell off quite a few of them to the visitors. The Red Wings come in, a ton of people from Detroit want to come into Vegas. It's a great thing. Be interesting to see. When the Raiders get here, the estimates are that it'll be 30% of the crowd will be visiting, so, which is great, interesting. You know, bed, heads in beds, which is good. So it's a fascinating place here. Vegas always is. UNLV, I think, will suffer, is suffering mightily for a number of different reasons, but certainly their basketball and football are going to hurt more. Uh, because of all this other competition. And uh, UNLV basketball has been living mostly in the early 
you know, 90s, the Tark era, and uh, haven't come out of that. They're going to play in the new football stadium. They have new football money has come in, and if they get 15,000 people in a 60 or 65,000 seat stadium, how's that going to look? So, not great. No, well, still, I, you're, no. you're, 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 it's a very interesting market. And, uh, and oh, as an inveterate sports uh, uh, promotion guy, I can't imagine you're the, uh, the stories and the work and the, uh, just the observations that you'll have uh, yet to come. And speaking of that, uh, we almost turn out three hours. And um, I, uh, I think we've gone through our second glass of water with, uh, with you. And I, uh, I got to yeah. thank you uh, just uh, tremendously for uh, regaling us in, in all of these uh, Great stops in, in your career. I, I, th- these yeah. are these are tremendous stories. Uh, we, we learned about new leagues that didn't even exist, uh, and and you know you are they never existed, right? They never they existed didn't. in some respects, right? Um, this has been great and and a, and a very interesting journey, and I think uh, uh, just a, a wealth of uh, of information. And, and our, I'm just I'm just I'm knocked over by uh, the people who respond to this show. We've been doing this for about a year or so. The nooks and crannies of the internet and and uh, people's devices and stuff. How people find out about it and friends of friends and uh, and the uh, the passion uh, and the corrections that we get uh, for various uh, mm-hmm. things about and stories and uh, apocryphal uh, remembrances that may or may not have been true. Uh, the audience is very uh, very uh, rabid and very interested in this, and I, I suspect that uh, uh, our our listeners will. Uh, eat this conversation. If it's just one or maybe two uh, episodes worth, uh, they will eat it up. And uh, I thank you so much for for um, for shining a light on some of these uh, these oft forgotten stories. And um, uh, frankly, a, a trip down your memory lane, which is uh, you know uh, very educational and very interesting for me certainly and for our audience hopefully. Well, you, you shook the cobwebs out of my memory. I was coming up with things, I, and I did. I didn't do any prep work. Uh, half the st- I'm looking for the missile logo. I can't find it. It was never digitized. <laughs> How about that? Let me leave you with two things I really I re- appreciated. One is I'm going to leave you with a little nugget that the LBA, we actually made money in the LBA. And the way we made money was Jim, create, Jim Drucker created the logo. And if you looked at it, it was Jerry West with a ponytail. Okay, so before we said we'll put it on the back burner, not that anybody knows that it's on the back burner, the NBA lawyers called us and said, well, called Jim and said, Jim, you you can't do it. It looks just like our logo. So Jim, being that master negotiated, negotiated a fee to change it. I want to say it was $5,000. Told, you know, I'm sure he told the people that that's what the artwork was. So we made $5,000 on, on a league that never happened. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is, I, I, I got to tell you that um, when I go through this, and I'm over 40 years in the business, and I'm absolutely blessed that I have never, I have not worked a day in my life. This has never been worked. It's never, you know, not in any way, shape, or forms in the hardest, worst times, in the best times, it was, it was never work. And, and I've been, and I haven't, you know, this hasn't been exactly success central here. I mean, everything I've done, it's failed, 
but it's okay because somebody has to try it. We, we, everybody that was involved in this made their best efforts without a doubt. Some things aren't made to happen at the right time, but I think most everybody you would talk to that's been involved in these sports will say they were absolutely blessed to be involved and have the opportunity to try to do something different. And that's the way I feel. And I've always, always felt this. I have very, I have some regrets on things that like what I know now that I didn't know then, but no regrets on having tried or done any of it. All right, there's a lot to unpack in that conversation, and I hope you took good notes, students. Um, no, there will not be a quiz, but uh, there's just an amazing amount of stuff to uh, to continue to, to dig into uh, for this conversation with Doug, whom we thank uh, profusely and tremendously for, for being part of this. So let's see. We talked about the uh, North American Soccer League, Philadelphia Adams, check. Uh, we talked about the, uh, the Chicago Sting, both of the NASL and indoor varieties of the MISL, check. Uh, we talked about the major indoor soccer league itself, the league. Uh, unbelievable big check mark there. And if you were listening carefully, we also unearthed the league that we didn't even know about. Oh my God, can you believe it? The Liberty Basketball Association. Holy cow. Uh, <laughs> the, talk about something that's uh, so much more to come and unearth on that one. The Liberty Basketball Association. Only Doug Verb uh, could, uh, could, could lead us down those... Uh, those pathways into all those things. And uh, I, I do want to underline and reiterate uh, that Doug is uh, absolutely uh, in in, uh, in the throes of uh, putting together uh, what is hopefully going to be the uh, major indoor soccer league reunion sometime in December, we think, hopefully in uh, in Las Vegas, where, where Doug lives. Uh, I am more than happy to uh, pass along uh, his email address. Uh, if, uh, if you send us an email at... Uh, Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com uh, or just go to our website or you can give us a tweet at goodseatsstill uh, or even send us a message on Instagram at goodseatsstillavailable uh, or hell, even on our Facebook page uh, devoted to our little show. I'm more than happy to put you in touch with Doug Verb uh, to find out more about the uh, upcoming major indoor soccer league reunion that he is uh, uh, trying to put together uh, in December uh, in Las Vegas. I know once uh, that gets solidified, uh, that I will uh, absolutely want to be there myself, and I will pass along information to you as I find out about it from him as well. So let's see, what else do we have? So sportshistorycollectibles.com, thank you for your sponsorship. Uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. We thank you, Audible, for your sponsorship. Uh, and we, of course, thank our friends at Podfly Productions. And of course, in particular, uh, the uh, the one, the only, the doctor, Jerry Payne, uh, and his uh, uh, tremendous... Uh, capabilities and uh, uh, his uh, his kind uh, and helpful work in putting our pieces together editorially and uh, production-wise. Podfly Productions, you will find them at podfly.net. Uh, and you will find me next week somewhere in your earbuds talking about some other fun topic around uh, teams and leagues that don't exist anymore. It's called Good Seats Still Available. Thank you for listening. And until that time, we uh, bid you a fond adieu.